With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. No! Oh my God! How could he do that? Are you on ch- What? Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Braver, and alongside me is Logan Camden, and today. We are continuing our NBA season preview series. We have now knocked down how many divisions, Logan? Three. This will be our fourth. The Northwest we're talking about today as we continue to make our way through all of these wonderful, wonderful NBA divisions. A very fun one, Logan. A one that I happen to be quite fond of as a guy who really enjoys watching the Denver Nuggets play basketball. Not to be confused with a Nuggets fan, a Nuggets enjoyer. But Logan, you may not have them at the top of the division. So as always, I'll throw it over to you for that top spot. Who do you have winning the Northwest? Uh, I've got the Jazz running it back as Northwest Division champions, and uh, it, it's pretty simple why. I mean, I, I just think they have such a, a such a replicable formula for success. And I mean, they've been one of the most consistent NBA franchises over the past five seasons and I expect that to continue this year I mean you take a look at what they do they play really hard on defense and they make a lot of threes and I don't see you know I don't see any reason up and down this roster why we should expect anything different from this year again last season led the league in three-pointers made and three-pointers attempted and you're bringing back a lot of guys who shoot well a lot of guys who play defense Conley Mitchell Bogdanovich O'Neal Gobert you're bringing back your entire core And I mean Carson you look at the guys that they lost trade away Derek Favors you lose Jarrell Brantley, Georges Niang, Juwan Morgan, Ursan Ilyasova, and Matt Thomas. I mean, really no major losses whatsoever. So, I mean, the the only questions I have about this team maybe being, you know, being able to get back to that uh, ceiling is can Mike Conley sustain his play while he continues to get up there in age? Um, and really, you know, with just the subtle changes in this bench, can they reach the same ceiling uh, there with the additions of Rudy Gay and Hassan Whiteside uh, and Eric Pascal? But really, I, I think that, yeah, there's no reason that you shouldn't have this team winning, you know, 55 games or, you know, in that region. I just expect the same level of dominance uh, from this team. You've got the best defensive player in the world and one of the best offensive, just, he's just a superhuman. Donovan Mitchell can just put up points in a bunch with a bunch of shooters around him. I just think it's a really replicable formula. They have done this for uh, a long time now, and I don't see any reason why we should expect regression from this team whatsoever. Well, 
Look, I don't know that they have done what they did last year for a long time, right? I think that they took it up a different level, specifically on the offensive end, but also defensively they had regressed the season prior and then got back to that very high level that we had known them for in the previous few years. But I agree with you. I don't know why we would expect regression from this group, and I get that maybe the Jazz aren't the sexiest pick to go out there and clinch the top seed out west again when you have... I don't know if anyone would have the Warriors in that tier, but if you do, just them being fully healthy again and having made a couple additions. Obviously, the Lakers now adding Russell Westbrook. Sure, there will be flashier candidates, but I don't know that there's a better team for regular season purposes, especially top to bottom, because you said it. Everything the Jazz did last year to me was highly sustainable. They were a top four offense. They were a top three defense. And by the way, they were consistently the best team through the regular season by a wider margin than the record would suggest. They finish 52-20, and 20, only a game up on the Suns. But again, that kind of two-way dominance, nobody else had that. They finished with a plus-9 net rating. Nobody else was over a plus-6.1 net rating. So they were beating people comfortably throughout the year. And what I repeatedly said last season was that they have the best top seven in basketball, and it's not close. And you look at their starting five, you look at having Joe Ingles and Jordan Clarkson come off the bench, like there is just a combination of shooting and playmaking and defense there that nobody else can replicate. And by the way, they were winning a whole lot of games throughout this entire regular season, right? Like they got off to a ridiculous start. But as the year went along, we saw Donovan Mitchell kick it into just a different gear. Post-All-Star break, he put up 30 a game on 47-39-87 splits, then carried that into the playoffs where, as we have come to expect from him, he was also just downright phenomenal and averaged 32 a game and five and a half assists on better than 43% from deep. So to me, you don't need him to be that kind of one offensive engine because you have so many guys who can make shots in a Bojan Bogdanovic, in a Mike Conley, in a Jordan Clarkson off the bench, in a Joe Ingles, and you also have guys who can create shots several players out of that group, and you have guys who can knock down shots all up and down this roster. So I think that that top seven is undeniable. Nobody else has seven guys giving you 20-plus quality minutes a night like the Jazz do. They have two legitimate star-level guys. They have two more fringe star-level guys. Like, as far as pure scoring ability, Bojan is outstanding, and that scoring-playmaking combo for Mike Conley being able to slide off the ball a little bit and knock things down as a catch-and-shooter, but also... Really high-level pick-and-roll ball handler and decision-maker. Has his floater game. Like, I just don't think anybody else in basketball has that. And that doesn't mean that they're my championship pick because I think that there is a certain superstar quotient that just becomes more valuable in the playoffs. We've seen that too many times over to deny it. But I don't think there's a more complete team in basketball. I don't think there's a team, again, that has a stronger top seven. And by the way, you talk about maybe questioning the bench. I think their deep bench is better than last year because that was one of maybe the few issues you could have had. You say, okay, once you get into eight and nine, you're playing Derek Favors, Georges Yang. Those guys are fine, but they're kind of forgettable. I really like the Rudy Gay pickup. I really, really like the Jared Butler pickup in the draft at 40. I thought that was one of the best picks that we saw. That's a guy who can play immediately to me. So I don't see the flaw with this team. That's just my take. The Jazz are going to win, to me, around 60 games again. The only thing that could really undo that is health and even... That, they are better set up to withstand than nearly anybody else. They did fine without Donovan Mitchell out there during the regular season last year. I think they were like one, two-thirds of their games. So, I don't see who's stopping this machine.
Yeah, and I mean, I think you touched on the big thing. I was going to say the exact same thing. I think this bench has gotten better, and you talk about uh, the, you know, the guys that you remove from the rotation. You add in Rudy Gay, who in tough spots can knock down tough shots, like when the Jazz need a tough bucket. He's a guy who can fit alongside other ball handlers and you know play that role as just a simple catch-and-shooter. Eric Paschal is another guy who can get you a tough bucket in the mid-range when you need one. I don't know what his role is in this rotation. I don't really know if he even gets a whole lot of burn because this is a deep bench, but he's another solid rotational piece that can get you buckets when you need them. And you talk about Jared Butler. I think he's my favorite addition. Um, in the pre-draft process, you know, we brought a friend of the show, Carvel Tefton. He said he liked him more than Davion Mitchell. And you know, for, for reasons why, like, I I, they're, I think they're pretty comparable, both of them, in, in how they play. They both can run you in offense, and again, maybe that's not Jared Butler's role initially. They're probably just going to um, expect him to play off-ball as a catch-and-shooter and, you know, play hard on defense, but what, what better way to ease him into a system than one like this where he's going to play a simple role, but then he'll be able to show you what he can do uh, with the ball in his hands when he's given that, you know, wealth of opportunity. So I really have... I have no questions about this team other than the Mike Conley question that's, you know, can he continue what he's been doing for so long? But, I mean, he's been one of the most consistent guys in basketball. We've talked about regression. I, I really expect none from this team. Um, that being said, Carson, you talk about that superstar quotient, that superstar ceiling in the playoffs. I want to ask you specifically, I want to ask you about Mike Conley and if you do expect regression first. So I'll go ahead with that, but I do have another question for you. Not really. I think that we saw honestly, regression from Mike Conley pretty clearly in his first year with Utah. And it just seemed to be that he never fully fit in and the efficiency wasn't there. Even his go-tos, even his floater, he just was not hitting at the normal clip. In fact, I think he was like 10% below what he normally does from floater range. And then last year, it was like, hey, Mike Conley's back. Mike Conley's great. And I thought in the playoffs demonstrated just some remarkable playmaking when he was out there. Eight assists a game in the playoffs. Just had a couple of masterpieces. So, no, I don't know why I would. Like, nothing he does is dependent on high-level athleticism. He doesn't have to carry the load of being a primary ball handler for 35 minutes a night for 82 games. He'll slide in. He'll play 29, 30 minutes a game like he has the last couple years. He'll be able to do some damage off the ball. He'll be able to create in stretches. I just think this has ended up being a really good scenario for him after we weren't so sure about that one year in. But I have very few questions about Conley, and I think that you said it, man. Jared Butler is a guy who can do various things for you, but in this unit is probably just going to be a hound defensively and a 40-plus percent shooter from deep who can also do a little off the bounce and playmake. Like, he is just the ultimate play now rookie and getting him in the second round blows my mind and Rudy Gay as an eighth man as a ninth man one of the best in basketball that dude still gets a bucket and like you said gonna shoot 38% from deep you can slide him off ball and then even if you look at their backup big situation I know you're a big Tony Bradley guy you're probably so sad thinking about the old Tony Bradley years with Utah but to have the possible combination of Hassan Whiteside or Udoka Azubuke as your backup center, they're simple players, but they're big, strong presences. And look, you will find nary a guy who has been more anti-Hassan Whiteside for longer than yours truly. But if you're going to ask him to play 15 minutes a game, yeah, he can do that job. And I think, honestly, Azubuke might be even better. We didn't see him last year, but his frame is just outstanding. He's got like a wingspan 
I think that's about 7'4". He's broad-shouldered. He's athletic. He can be a powerful role man. And that's all you need from a backup big. Like, that should conceivably be better than any backup big they've had in recent years. And they have a legitimate backup five now, whereas previously, Favors was kind of the guy there, and he's not a true five. So, I feel like we have to address what happened to them in the playoffs. The thing is, I kind of told everybody that was going to happen in the playoffs, right? Like I said, but when we were making our playoff predictions, I think the Jazz are a better team than the Clippers, but the Clippers can exploit Rudy Gobert in a way that nobody else in basketball can because they can go completely small ball five and not lose really anything. And they can be the best shooting team in basketball and they can negate a majority of what Gobert does. And people look at that and they say, oh, Rudy Gobert is useless. No, he found his nightmare matchup. That's what happened. We could have told you that was going to happen. And in fact, we did. Is that going to happen again? Probably not. And by the way, it still took seven games. And sure, a couple of them were without Kawhi Leonard. But I just don't see that happening again. I don't see the team out west that can exploit the Jazz like that. Lakers certainly can't do it. I don't think that even a Denver or a Phoenix can come close to it. Like, the Clippers could genuinely play their best five guys, all of whom could shoot 39% or better from three. I don't know who else can do that in basketball. I I can see it happening again for sure. I mean, it's going to take, don't get me wrong, like, it's going to take extreme circumstances. The team is going to have to shoot lights out. But, I mean, the Clippers did it once. Like, what's stopping another team from running small with their best five shooters and just trying to shoot the Jazz to death? Nobody else is best five shooters are their best five guys and nobody else shoots 42% from deep as a team, which the Clippers actually did last year. This was the greatest probably three-point shooting team we've ever seen. I know, but like you can't even conceptualize, let's say the Mavericks, the Clippers getting hot again, the Suns getting hot and shooting 40% from deep and the Jazz have, you know, a 33% shooting series from deep. The Mavs to me are the group with the personnel And that you go KP at the five and you can have five flamethrowers out there and you just stick them on the perimeter. It's not the same thing in that you can't attack a Gobert switch, but that's not really what the Clippers were doing. You know, they had a few daring possessions where Reggie Jackson or Terrence Mann would go right at Gobert, but for the most part, it's just, hey, I'm going to stand here in the corner and you can continue to take away the rim. That's fine. We're not going to the rim. We're just going to shoot from deep. They were, along with the Trailblazers, the least reliant team on paint offense in all of basketball. So the Mavs maybe, but the Mavs aren't a good enough defensive team to me. I don't think that they are going to have the variety of creators needed. The Warriors are not going to be able to do it. They're going to be playing two non-shooters with their starting lineup. The Suns, you're not taking Aiton off the floor for extended stretches. And none of those teams, regardless, are going to be able to shoot the ball as well as the Clippers. Mm. So look, sure, they didn't even make the Western Conference Finals last year. They could make the Finals. I just don't know where the better all-around team in the West is. And that's not saying that they're my prediction, but they could 100% do it. Yeah, I like the enthusiasm. And, uh, I mean, you make some good points. I also want to add some additional things about the the bench that you brought up. I have also not been a big Hassan Whiteside guy. I didn't like him last season either. But I think this is the one situation where... I like Whiteside. Like, again, his role has always been simplified after he moved on from from the Miami Heat. But here it works. Like, you're going to have guys around you that compete where, yeah, Whiteside can just eat up the paint. And he does similar things to Gobert. Obviously not to that level. I'm not saying he does. But, yeah, I think here a guy like Whiteside really does work. And I'd love to see Doak. I think Doak is better at this point. Younger, stronger, 
more athletic. Give him the burn. But I think he works here. And then I just want to talk about Rudy Gay once more. Dude, the Spurs were counting on him in crunch time last year. Like, like, think about that for a second. Like, I know the Spurs' offense was hard, was horrendous. In crunch time, they counted on this guy. And now, like you said, Carson, he's the eighth guy on this bench. Like, I, I, I completely agree with you on the bench fact that, I don't know, man. The Jazz were the best that they have ever been last year, and they can conceivably get better. I don't think a finals run is out of the question, especially out of the Suns went to the finals last year. Way out of left field. I mean, if the Suns can do it, I feel like, Anybody can do it. Maybe a little bit of an overstatement there. I don't know. And also, not to diminish the accomplishment, but the Suns did have to get a little bit lucky. The Jazz are going to be going through a tougher West with a revamped Warriors team with, more importantly, a probably fully healthy Lakers team. Who knows what it'll look like in 82 games, but that's the assumption for now. The Clippers, if Kawhi's back by the end of the year, that's a scary team. The Nuggets, Jamal Murray will be back probably by January, so they'll have a few months to get into form. Like, it's going to be a tougher challenge for whoever gets out of the West, no question. I just think the Jazz are equipped to do it. Maybe we just shout out some of our favorites here. I mean, Joe Ingles should have been the sixth man last year. Let's face it, sixth man of the year, that is. And I get that he ended up starting almost half their games because of injury stuff, but good grief, that dude just does so many winning things. High-level pick-and-roll ball handler, one of the best catch-and-shooters there is, gritty defender, crazy creative passer. There's just, again... Nobody who has a top seven with a variety of guys who do as many things at a high level as the Utah Jazz. I guess the one question that I'll ask you that could maybe extend their ceiling even higher, because we know what so many of these guys are, is do we see a permanent leap from Donovan Mitchell? Is he a no-brainer, all-NBA kind of guy? Because he did average 30 a game after the All-Star break last year. Is that sustainable do you think that that growth is legitimate or do you think he's going to be what we saw last year? Very good 26 point per game score does so on kind of average efficiency. Isn't maybe a crazy offensive engine, although he's come further along in every way. He's a better shooter. He's a better playmaker as crazy an athlete as ever as aggressive as much of a dog. I'm not one to count Donovan Mitchell out at this stage, although I was earlier in his career as far as the ceiling. And I regret that. But what do you think? What Donnie do we see? I mean, I don't think we see a different Donovan Mitchell in the regular season than we ever have, just because I don't think it's going to be necessary. Like you said, there's so many other guys who take the weight off of Donovan Mitchell's you know, shoulders during the regular season. You get a hot Jordan Clarkson game. You get a hot Conley game. You get a hot uh, you know, Boyan game. You get a hot Joe Ingles game. And again, Ingles, Clarkson, Conley, they can all run an offense pretty competently and take the ball out of his hands. So statistically, no, I don't think we see a significant leap efficiency-wise or points-per-game-wise, but I will stand by this because I said it last year. Carson, you've been on this boat with me. When it comes playoff time, Donovan Mitchell is still one of the most valuable players to have, and there's only a handful of guys I would take over him offensively in the in the entirety of the NBA. You know, there are very few guys I would take over Donovan Mitchell when it comes to in the playoffs getting a tough bucket, and I still think he's one of the most valuable players in the NBA when it comes playoff time, so... I don't think he gets noticed. I don't think there's any additional accolades, but I think we see. I think we see it continuously. We saw it last year. I think we see another one when it comes playoff time. If Donovan Mitchell is healthy, there's no doubt in my mind that we see another leap from him. Yeah, to me, I feel like we've seen the leap now. And again, I don't want to limit what he could be, but the playmaking has improved. The shooting has improved. And by the way, the shooting is what drove the playoff brilliance. Like Donovan Mitchell four years ago 
could never have shot 43% from deep for an extended stretch. It was not a weakness in his game, but he was a mediocre shooter. He was 34% from deep as a rookie, and he's just consistently improved. And I agree with you. I mean, his value absolutely goes up in the playoffs. We've seen that time and again. And I made a whole YouTube video about it. Like, he's 100% barn on their most valuable playoff performer. And I'm not going to say there's only a handful of guys, literally. I'm not going to say there's five guys. But he's probably in the top 15 players I want. Man, the NBA is so good. I don't know. Top 20 guys if I'm trying to win a title, no question. Let me ask you this then. How does he get better then? What like what really takes him up another level? I think that it is really the playmaking probably because as a scorer, he's just not missing much, man. Like few dudes explode to the bucket like that. He does have the touch in between. And again, he is raining triples off the bounce these days. So it's probably that. And then just generally maybe being more efficient inside the arc maybe a few less of the mid-range, long-ish twos. But you're kind of nitpicking at that point. Like, he's a really exceptional all-around talent. So, Jazz are going to be great, man. I have them going 59-23. and I have them as the one seed out west. I might have them as the one seed by a couple games, just given some of the regular season bumps and bruises I think some other teams will go through. Where do you have the Jazz? Uh, I have them at 58-24. and I don't have my official seeding yet, but uh, just one game off of yours. Yeah, so I don't have my official seeding for every team, but I am confident in the Jazz repeating as the one seed. And book it for me. I just feel like I understand the instinct again to go look at other teams that are shinier or whatever, but this team made the most threes in basketball history last year. They were a top three defense. Everything that we've said about them, I don't need to repeat it over and over again, but man, were they impressive. And as long as they can survive the emotional disappointment of last year and come back strong, which I think they'll be able to. Remarkable basketball team. All right. Who do you have second here in the Northwest? So I think this one's pretty obvious as well. Uh, I've got the Denver Nuggets in my second spot out here. And I I think the two biggest questions about this team, um, outside of Jamal Murray in general, I think that's the biggest question when it comes playoff time is what is he going to look like? Is he going to be at full health? You know, just what is he? Is Jamal the same beast that, that he was back when you know, he's putting up 50-point games? Like, I, I want bubble Jamal Murray back. My two biggest questions have to be, though, do we see Nikola Jokic back at an MVP caliber status, which, I mean, come on. Like, of course we're going to predict that. I mean, he was, was unconscious, bro. 14 points better offensively per possession were the Nuggets with Jokic on the floor. 99th percentile of the league. Carson made a YouTube video about it a while back. You guys should peep it. Kind of kickstarted this whole thing. Good work, bro. I think my next biggest question, Carson, I think this is really what's going to decide the fate of this team in the regular season, the record, and when it comes playoff time. What does this bench do with Jokic off the floor? I mean, that had to be your question watching any Nuggets game last year is, damn, does this team suck with Jokic off the floor? Like, just routinely defensive, like defensively, the Nuggets have never been a strong team, and that has been their issue, like with with Jokic on the floor, with Jokic off the floor. And I don't think they they solved any of those issues with the additions they made. Carson, this is a team that's going to be running Jamichael Green and Jeff Green at the four and the five. I like both the guys with the floor spacing that they give you, and the you know that that dynamic kind of offensive things that they give you defensively. I think this team is going to be really bad with Jokic off the floor once more. Like again, I think they're going to be high energy, but. I just worry about this team being able to create consistent offense with him out there. I I question if they're going to be able to be average defensively with him on the floor and off. Uh, 
And so I just wonder overall, I don't know, can they be competent with Jokic off the floor this season? I don't think they can be. I think that's what ultimately holds them back. I think they drop a few more games because of that. Outside of that, I think it's a really replicable formula just like the Jazz, though. They're a really simple team. Jokic gets you a screen. Jokic has the ball and takes it into the post, creates out of there by himself, like, and they hu- they hook up a lot of threes. I think all of that is really replicable when you have the ball handlers on this roster and Monte Morris and Will Barton in Faku in Rivers in P.J. Dozier, when you have the shooters around uh, Jokic that you have here, in MPJ, in, again, in Barton, in Morris, when Murray, when he gets healthy, and you have a, a guy who fills the dunker spot and defensive role in Aaron Gordon really well, I just have a lot of questions with Jokic on the, off the floor like I did last year. So this team was the number 11 defense in basketball last year. Why would you expect regression there to them being below average? I specifically mean with Jokic off the floor. I mean, this team dramatically improved when Aaron Gordon got on the team, and I think he's by far their best defensive asset. And I think maybe they're better consistently, like when they're running their starting five. I just I just have no hope for this bench when Jokic isn't out there, bro. Like for this team to reach their full ceiling, for this team to win a title, bro, Jokic would have to play 48 minutes a game. That's just That's just my opinion. Do you think I'm crazy for saying that? Well, I just don't know if title should be the bar. And if Jamal Murray is out there in himself, which I have full faith he will be, he's a young guy, so I don't think we're looking at hopefully any sort of long-term career-altering damage here coming off the ACL, I think that this could be a fringe title-caliber team. Sure, it's a top-five offense in basketball. It's a dynamic machine that doesn't stop with a lot of shooting coming from a lot of places. And... A guy was right up there for the best offensive player in all of basketball and the best player in all of basketball. And this is a take that I had throughout last year, but I don't know how you could consistently watch Nuggets basketball and deny that fact. Like, this dude has revolutionized what is possible at the center position. Not that anybody else is going to replicate it, but he has redefined it for him personally, at least. He scores at a level of volume, efficiency, and in a variety of ways that we've never seen before at the center position. Like, we're talking about 26 and a half a game on 57, 39, 87 splits last year while being right up there for the best passer in basketball. Like, he is right up there for the best player in the world. I firmly believe that, and I don't expect regression. I know that he was deflated by the end of last year, and he went back to Sombor, Serbia, and rode some horses around and recovered and didn't go to the Olympics and all that. And it's going to take a lot for him, I think, to muster the kind of energy again that he had to for this past season because we remember from the couple years before that, he spent his fair share of time tuning up and until about December didn't look like the kind of truly elite top 10 player that he was. And then last year it was from the jump, just otherworldly. And he continued that through Jamal Murray's absence and carried that team to go 16-8 and in the regular season without Murray and then win a playoff series without Murray. And to ask him to do that for a few months again is a lot, but I think that he can. I think that he is that exceptional of a talent, and I just think we have seen the permanent leap from him to where maybe there was some leap as far as talent last year, but I do think people overstate that. Like we saw it in previous years with playoff Jokic where he just went out there and casually dropped 26 a game on insane efficiency. It's just always been who he was when he wanted to be that. So that's not really what you were questioning. And I understand that when it comes to Jokic being off the floor defensively, they don't have a quality backup big. Sure. 
and they will continue to miss Mason Plumley there like they did last year. But that's not different from last year. Like, they're not going to be worse off there. I think their depth is improved. What? You take issue with that? No, no, no. Not defensively. I just mean in general, dude, there were just so many stretches of Nuggets basketball where it is 12-0 runs, 15-0 run, like just runs where this offense is abysmal with him off the floor. Here's what I think is important context to keep in mind. Last year, not only were the Nuggets without Jamal Murray, they were without Will Barton for basically that entire regular season stretch. And then once he did get back out there, it was like, hey, Will, we're throwing you into the playoffs. Go ahead and find yourself. I think Will Barton is a better player than the version that we saw out there. And I thought that he had his moments in the playoffs still, but I expect more from him generally. And then I do think the ball handling depth here is solid. Like, sure, it wasn't enough for them to make the Western Conference Finals. But all they have to do is win 60% of their games for a couple months, and then you get Jamal back, presuming that he's on a pretty good timetable recovery-wise. We haven't really been told anything, and you're good to go. I love Monte Morris, all right? I've been very outspoken about that. He is a mid-range artist, which earns you automatic points with me. He's a good decision-maker. Faku, love him, absolute dog. Not a great creator, obviously, for himself, but you can play him off ball, and he'll play make for others. Austin Rivers, I think, is a guy who's competent handling the ball and brings you some two-way value. And then, I love the addition of Bones Highland, dude. And I'm not going to say, hey, as a rookie, he's a game-changing player off the bench. I do think, though, if you are looking at a team that really wanted that extra creator, given the spot they were drafting at, I think they did an exceptional job. And already we saw in Summer League, he went out there and got buckets, put up 20-5 and five on 40% from deep. He is just nasty, man. He is creative. He has a deep bag. He is a three-level scorer. He's a pretty crafty playmaker in the scheme of things. He can shoot the hell out of the ball, nifty finisher at the rim. Like, I'm not going to say, again, that he's going to be a game-changing player as a rookie because I don't think he is. But he's an interesting variable here. And I just think, again, did we see the Nuggets suffer in the regular season without Jamal Murray? No. They still won two-thirds of their games. We saw it in the playoffs when you're facing a top-five defense in the Suns who are highly determined, and you were lacking other creators. And MPJ was bad. MPJ was bad in that series. That's when it started to be like, hey, this is kind of a joke out here. Against the Blazers, that offense was still Firing on all cylinders. It's the Blazers, sure. But last 20 games of the regular season, the offense, if I'm not mistaken, got better after Jamal got hurt as far as offensive rating because Jokic is going to do that. For 36 minutes a game, he is going to be the focus entirely of a defense who will be that hub for you from wherever you need it as a scorer, as a playmaker, as a shooter, as a post presence, as a role man. And then all you need to do is not screw it up for 12 minutes. And if you're giving me Monte Morris and Austin Rivers and Bones Highland and saying I can stagger Will Barton's minutes and all they have to do is hold on for a month and a half, absolutely I think that they can. I understand what you're saying if the expectation is winning a title, but if the expectation is winning a lot of regular season games, I think they'll be okay. That's the thing though, Carson. I do see a route, fully healthy Jamal Murray, an absolute buck in MPJ who is just going to play off ball, not make dumb decisions. That's a lot asking of MPJ. Go check out Carson's video. He breaks it down. There's a lot of talent here, man. 
And if they are fully healthy, you give Jokic two knockdown shooters, a beastly creator in Jamal Murray, who again, when fully healthy, is a scary bucket on at any part of the court. Aaron Gordon, who again, with Jokic dragged out, with Murray running the offense, right in the dunker spot, is going to have that paint wide open, is a really good defender. Like, I don't know, dude. I do see a a really special... Like, I think they're going to be a, a seven-game out fully healthy for any team in the Western Conference. Because this team is going to fight. They are going to scrap. And again, at full health, they are a scary, terrifying team. I want to I talk about some of the, uh, uh, the swing factors. You mentioned Bones Highland, who... I just want to add, dude, pull-up shooting marksman. He is a marksman with that pull-up jumper in the mid-range, again, which he is an artist at, um, from deep. Like, I, I didn't really see a whole lot. You talk about his deep bag. At VCU, I don't really think he he showcased his bag, you know, out of, out of the pick-and-roll and getting his own shot. His game was pretty simplified there, man, with just off-the-dribble stuff. But, I mean, in Denver, that's exactly what you need. You need a guy who can go through a screen and put up a shot and knock down a catch-and-shoot jumper. He fits perfectly here. Again, like you said, I don't know if he changes the, the dynamic here, but he's a really talented player and could be really dangerous next season. But I think there's two other guys here in this rotation who definitely could swing this. It's going to depend on the volume of opportunity they have, but but Zeke Naji and Bol Bol, like, they're uber-talented freaks, man, and they just have not gotten that burn here yet. Again, I don't know if we're going to see them get a whole lot of rub with this rotation and how it's set in stone, but they're guys who are, who are pretty versatile and can do some interesting things. I like Najee a little more uh, just because I just think he's a smarter basketball player. I like him in transition. He makes good decisions on offense, and he just fills in a really a really good role. A high defensive uh, catch-and-shooter. He's athletic. He crashes the boards hard. I just like him as a player, but again, there are two guys who we've not seen featured a lot in this team, in this rotation, who... I don't know, we haven't seen in a while. I'd like to see what they offer to this team and if they've improved a little bit. Personally, I don't really think Bol Bol works here. I kind of wish the Nuggets would just move off of him and let him, I don't know, go do his thing somewhere else. But again, three guys here in Najee Highland and Bol Bol who, I don't know, maybe you could do some special things giving the opportunity uh, in this rotation. I'll just clarify on the Bones Highland bag comment real quick. Basically to me, he has two of the most practical skill sets when you're looking at creating for yourself, which is I think he changes pace well and has a good sense of how to move and be deceptive as a ball handler, and he's got a really nice step back. And if you can do those two things, you can get your shot off in a lot of situations. So I think, again, he's very gifted there. I am with you on the Zeke Naji train. I don't know how much he plays because the thing is, Again, we've talked about the guard depth, and then if you're looking at the sort of hybrid wing big depth, the four, you have the Green brothers, who are clearly a cut above Najee. I like him a lot. I think, as you said, fluid, skilled athlete, can shoot the ball. I think he's going to be very good in this league. I don't know that he plays a lot right away, and Bull Bull, I don't think, plays. I don't really see a ton what the value is. Like, if you need a backup big and you're desperate, maybe, like, he has unique size and length, but not size in the sense of strength and physicality. It's just, like, really long arms. Are you legitimately thinking Bull Bull is a guy for this team? No, well, that's exactly what I'm going to ask. And why is he here? You know what I mean? Like, it's... Probably because he was, like, the 40-something pick of the draft and isn't the most sought-after asset in the world. I mean, somebody's got to be interested in Bull Bull. Like, I just think that... He's a guy who could be getting rotational minutes 
somewhere in this league. Somebody has to want him. Like, I just don't like seeing a guy like Bol Bol who potentially given the opportunity could grow as a player, just not given given the burn here. Like, if he's not going to play, G-League him. Send him somewhere else. Like, dude, just do something with him. He just, I just don't want to see the kid waste away here in Denver while he's still really young. Yeah, I think he would be a great G-League player. I think that that's a good spot for him. Like, that's an area where he can produce, he can put up his numbers, in my opinion, but I just don't think he's a rotation guy here. You talked about some of the swing factors. I'll throw out one for me, and I had some negative flashbacks as you were talking about sort of the desperation in some of the non-Jokic minutes, and I really just thought back to the playoff series against the Suns, and the one guy to me who was very upsetting to watch, frankly, his regression in his time with Denver was Aaron Gordon, and it wasn't really by a fault of his own. Maybe a little bit, maybe a little more self-awareness would have been good, but it's, look, they got to the point where they just needed guys who could go out there and get a bucket and do something off the bounce to take the pressure off of Jokic once Jamal Murray was out and they were playing a great defense. Aaron Gordon tried to step up to be one of those guys. To me, he just does not have the skill set, and it was very frustrating watching him take pull-up jumpers, and try to force the issue. I just did not enjoy that. But what I said several times over last year, Logan, is the version of Aaron Gordon that we saw in the five games he played with Jamal Murray was unequivocally the best Aaron Gordon that we've ever seen because it was just simplified. It was simplified, and he shot 64% from the field, averaged 13 a game, rolling to the rim, cutting, and then just playing his ass off on defense. I want to see that Aaron Gordon again. And when Jamal Jamal Murray gets back out there, we will. And I still think Jamal Murray is a special weapon come playoff time. I still think there are only so many guys who can get a bucket like that. I still think he could easily score 24 points a game in a playoff run. Like, we're not going to see Jamal Murray from the bubble, probably, just because of the ridiculous efficiency. And, like, that was a man possessed, truly. But he does not fear the moment. He has improved in both postseasons we've seen him in, and he just has that skill set. Dudes who get buckets like that get more valuable, and that's a scary one-two punch when you have Aaron Gordon playing off of those guys, and when you have Michael Porter Jr., who I've already kind of given my two cents on, but look, he could be the $200 million man now. He probably won't because that would require him to nail every incentive in his contract, basically. But he's going to be the $150 man or the $145 million man. What are you looking for from MPJ in year three? Just less dumb stuff, bro. I mean, I've heard more MPJ. I've heard more MPJ stuff from you than anybody else. And it's just just cutting down on dumb stuff. I, I, I think you're right in... And what you talked about in the limitations of his game, like I don't think he ever becomes a creator off the dribble. But again, that, that's that's why I think I just think healthy Jamal Murray, like you said, I think he changes everything about this team because you're simplifying other guys' roles. Jokic is not desperate to get buckets at any point in games because he's got someone that is taking that stress off him in Jamal Murray. He's another guy who can get tough buckets. It simplifies Aaron Gordon's role to playing hard on defense and rolling to the rack and taking smart shots and not being forced like he was in the playoffs to try to create off the dribble. That's not AG's game. MPJ, instead of having to have the ball in his hands, and I think I think the Nuggets are going to try to have him as a, you know, as a pick-and-roll ball handler. I think we're going to see a lot of that, and I think we're going to see some dumb shots in the mid-range, some contested jumpers, because that's all MPJ knows. See ball, shoot ball. It simplifies his role because he can just move off of ball, which he likes to do. 
to me, Jamal Murray coming back changes the all the dynamics about this team, and it simplifies MPJ's role. I think early on, Carson, I think we're going to see MPJ try to be Superman. I think he's going to try to be superhuman out of the gate and try to create off the dribble and try to do a lot of stuff that he's not billed to do. But I think statistics-wise, I don't know, man, 22, 23 a night, and I think a lot of that has to do with Jamal being out um, early on, but 22, 23 on... I don't know, 47, 41, 80 splits. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. I think we should honestly expect it uh, from him. MPJ's confident as hell, man. And if there's one thing you can expect, it's for him to shoot the hell out of the pill. Totally agree. And we had this debate many times last year about could MPJ step up in Jamal's absence? And it ended up being that the production was there. Post-All-Star break, he was 22 a game on 56, 46, 81 splits. Like, you just shake your head and say, how could anybody be that pure of a shooter? The, the thing was, though, I said he doesn't have the skill set to be a ball handler, to be a decision maker. And he was able to get his 22 a game without having to do that. And I think that's the key again this year. It's going to be an issue. If MBJ steps up and says, hey, this is my show as much as it is Jokic's and the team needs me to go do a ton of things for this squad, incorrect. Last year, and I said this in the video about him, despite his massive kick in production after the All-Star break, a higher percentage of his field goals were actually assisted. So he is still being the kind of special off-ball player that he is. And that's what he needs to remain because he's an excellent cutter. He is one of the most gifted shooters off movement, off the catch I have ever seen. There are not 6'10 dudes who have the kind of balance and body control and just pure dead-eye ability that he does and the kind of confidence. So, look, I'm always going to be frustrated by MPJ and stretches. I'm always going to focus on his inadequacies a little bit just because I think sometimes people get carried away. But it's also worth noting that he does so many things at just a special almost historic level. Like, I think we're going to get there with his shooting. I'm willing to be early on the train there. I think he's going to be one of the greatest pure shooters we've ever seen. And then it's like, once Jamal Murray is back and he is a number three option offensively, who is better? Who do you want above him as a third offensive option? Like, it's only, you know, a Kyrie Irving, a true crazy star off the bounce. But as far as guys who can just easily slide in and be insanely efficient and productive off ball... It's him. It's just, as you said, about him understanding that and not trying to do too much stupid stuff. And it'll always take a couple shots a game where you're just like, what the hell? But you know what? He might make one of those shots because he's that crazy. And if he misses the other one, you scratch your head. But as long as it's not in the fourth quarter, you move on and you take the good stuff. You know, Carson, I was, uh, I was, in, I was in the SDFC in the gym playing basketball the other day. And some kid uh, made the made the KD comp in front of me, and it took every fiber of my being to not you know drop kick that young man right there on the spot on the basketball court. But uh, I don't know. I just think that those expectations are lofty. I know you called him a uh, a six ten Clay Thompson. I, I've asked you this before, but what do you think he is? Is he that right now? Like, in is there anybody in NBA history that you could compare him to? to what he is right now, or do you think that's the most apt comparison? I think that's the most apt comparison. And look, I made a video on this, all right, but assuming that not everybody watched that, you're going to hear it. And if you did, you can take another five minutes of MPJ talk because I think these are important questions and very interesting questions. I think that is the most apt comparison. That's why I chose that comparison. And 
MPJ is a guy who is highly reliant on other people to create offense for him. Almost 80% of his field goals last year were assisted. The only true star wing or true star period in the NBA who compares to that is Clay Thompson because Clay is like MBJ, this crazy movement shooter who is all time gifted, obviously, and can shoot 45% from three, at least 40 every single year, and can do that in very difficult situations, but also doesn't handle the ball at an exceptionally high level, doesn't explode athletically, isn't a very good decision maker and playmaker. And that to me is just what MPJ is. And I understand that people think, oh, he's young. Why couldn't he explode? Why couldn't he be KD? And what I always say is, it's not only about youth with these guys. By the way, he's 23. He's not insanely young. But you have to look at the traits because he is completely unaware as a passer. He wants to shoot the ball every time he touches it. He is so upright and stiff that he's never going to be able to cross dudes up like Katie. He's never going to be able to explode to the bucket off the bounce. He's lacking in the in-between game. He doesn't have a floater. He doesn't have any sort of pace or rhythm as an offensive player out of the pick and roll as a ball handler. I shouldn't say rhythm because he has rhythm as a shooter, but that's it. So to me, you're getting what you're getting. And he was an incredible second year player. I just don't know how much better he gets than what we saw in the second half of last year. But again, if you are trying to win a title as a third guy, that can be enough if Jamal Murray plays up to his maximum potential. So you talked about them being in that conversation very clearly. The Nuggets view themselves at that level because they are all in on this core. Murray and Jokic have already been paid. Aaron Gordon got paid four years, $92 million. Michael Porter Jr. has been paid, again, at least $145 million. They are locked into this core. We talked many times over about the potential for a Beal trader doing something else just to get that little bit of extra punch. My thought right now is a fully healthy Nuggets team, maybe in a year or two, I don't think that they'll ever be the title favorite because I think, unfortunately, it's just super teams popping up and whatnot. But they will have a title chance. And you go all in on that when you have it. And I think that fully healthy, maybe not this year, but for several years going forward, they'll be a top five team in basketball. They have a top five player. They have a second star who sure can be inconsistent, but is exceptional at his best and gets more valuable in the playoffs. They have at least solid, above-average defensive personnel. They have shooting. They have a great third offensive option. We should mention, I do like the addition of a Jeff Green, too. I think that's another legitimate rotation guy who can really shoot the ball and played some valuable minutes for the Nets this past year. So I like their depth overall. I think it's a really good foundation. This year, I have them going 52-30. and 30. I have them as the four seed. Maybe that would be a little bit higher if they were going to have a full year of Jamal, but I still think they're going to win a lot of games without him. What do you have for the Nuggets? And I assume that you agree, but are you all in on them going all in as well? I love it. I mean, I think it's a perfect thing you do. And again, something that uh, I've been adamant on. Yeah, it took some weird circumstances from Phoenix, but it, this last season restored my faith in the in the balance of basketball. I mean, I just thought, I mean, ever since you know 2015, when we got Cavs Warriors, Cavs Warriors, Cavs, Warriors, and these super teams keep coming back. I had lost faith that, man, we're never going to get balance, but that's why this makes sense because there's balance, there's parity across this league. And again, when you, like, as much as I hate to say it, bro, and hate to give credit to the guy, MPJ makes this thing go. 
Like I, no I don't need mean to say we hate the guy. I don't hate the guy, but I'm saying with all of his, all the mental mistakes that the kid makes, and all that, all that stuff coupled, MPJ makes this thing go. You need an electric scorer like that, and he makes them, he makes them scary, and can give them that edge in a playoff series. So yeah, I love it. I think it makes perfect sense. It gives them an opportunity to come out of the West. And again, while it may take some interesting circumstances, an injury to another team, um, you know, something like that going on, it gives them an opportunity. I have them going 53 and 29. Again, I don't have my exact seating right now. They'll probably be top five. Uh, when you have Nikola Jokic, when you have the best offensive player on the planet in, an, in a system like this with shooters, with ball handlers, I think you have to have them in this tier. I don't think there's any any way they go below 50 wins. Yeah. I believe I said I have them as the four seed. I'll put them in the three to five seed range. I think they'll end up four for me, but I'm not positive. I also realized I said on a previous episode I had the Mavs penciled in at five. Probably going to change that to six. The Western Conference is so, so good. But we'll see decisively once we're done with all these predictions. Yeah, I just think when it comes to MPJ point, I said this in the video too, but there's a reason Davis Bertans gets 80 million and Duncan Robinson gets 90 million. That kind of shooting... The pressure that that relieves from your star players to where you send help and it's boom. Knockdown triple for one of those guys. That's very, very valuable. And the important thing is just to not cast MPJ in a role where he has to be one of those creating guys. And when Jamal Murray's out there, he will not have to do that. And this team, end of the year, man, could be a top three team in the West easily. Could be a top five team in basketball easily. I wouldn't write off any of those possibilities, but I do think they're not going to win to me 57 games in the regular season without Jamal Murray for the first chunk of it. Maybe they could. Maybe Jokic goes that berserk again, but I don't know. I don't think he can be better than last year. I think he can be as good, but I don't know how he could be better. That would just blow my mind. To have a better season than the greatest offensive season of any big man ever, we'll see. But I do love Jokic, and in fact, I am wearing a Nikola Jokic shirt right now. So take that, haters. All right, who do you have third in this division? I have the Portland Trailblazers here, and I mean, they're a team that, it, it, it's simple how they generate their buckets, man. They were the best pick-and-roll team in basketball last season, and I expect nothing less. I mean, Damian Lillard's back, C.J. McCollum's back, give another flamethrower in Norman Powell. I mean, offensively, night-to-night, this team is, it's going to be tough to stop. They're going to put up buckets on your head, and if you were not running with them, if you were not staying with them on that pace, you're going to get run off the floor. And I mean, then you add in... Uh, a super talented guy like Yusuf Nurkic. I thought last year, you know, we may have seen a little bit of regression, you know, a little bit of, he struggled a little bit, but I, I expect him to come back to decent health. He's still a very talented guy on the boards. He stretches the floor. He's a big dude who is stuff to, uh, tough to stop in the post. My thing here, Carson, is like, what an overhaul, dude. What a retooling of a bench. Like, I don't know if I've ever seen this kind of dramatic change in one team's bench from from year to year, dude. Like, you, you lose out on a lot of guys, on Carmelo, on Zach Collins, Harry Giles, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, trade away Derek Jones Jr. You lose en- uh, uh, Ennis Canner. Like, it, it's just a weird bench, dude. And, like, I just have no idea what to expect out of them. You have Tony Snell, Cody Zeller, Ben McLemore, Larry Nance, and Anthony Simons. That's your second rotation. I don't outright hate any of those guys, but... I just don't know what to expect. Like, Nance and Zeller are two weird guys to have in your front court for a modern day. Nance can stretch the floor a little bit. He can rim run a little bit, but he doesn't do anything exceptionally well. Cody Zeller just straight up sucks. I hate that guy. I want to gouge my eyes out watching Cody Zeller play basketball. And that haircut, whoo, horrid. Let that thing go, brother. 
Would you describe that as a haircut <laughs> or just hair? <laughs> no, it's hair. It's hair. Let that thing go, bro. Because I think that's about all he's got. I don't know that he's gotten that cut ever. I think he's really holding on tight there. Hey, he is holding on. He looks like my grandpa, bro. Just come on, Cody. Do us a favor and just go full Mr. Clean. Did you take offense to me calling him your grandpa? What was that look? Not my grandpa. You said your grandpa. Yeah, I did say that. My fault. I misspoke. Happens sometimes. Um, as for the other guys, like, I don't know, dude. I just, I think there's a big burden on Anthony Simons to run this bench unit. Um, I, I told you before the pod, I think they need to stagger these minutes. I think you need to have Norm, CJ, or Dame with Anthony on the floor at all times with this bench unit. He's just, like, he's a good pick-and-roll ball handler, and that's something that he's been exceptional with. An- Carson has been one of the biggest Anthony Simon guys uh, since he entered the league. Crazy bounce. Great change of pace. Um, he's a good catch and shooter. Shot 51% off the catch last year. That is a weapon to have alongside any unit. Uh, 79th percentile out of the pick and roll. He's a good ball handler. But he's just going to have to become a really good playmaker to really run this unit. And that's something that he has re- really struggled in, man. And finding those passing lanes and just running an offense. So there's a big burden on him. You have a spotty catch and shooter in Ben McLemore who shot 37% last season. And then you got Tony Snell, bruh. Tony Snell shot 59% off the catch last year. He's not going to do that again. I mean, I hope he does. That'd be crazy. It's just a weird bench unit, man. It is It is the weirdest bench unit, I think, in the NBA. And I just think, I think we see a little regression, man. Like, this team's going to put up points. They are still going to suck defensively. Robert Covington and uh, Robert Covington's a good defensive asset, but it's like he doesn't change the whole package of your team. You don't really have any game changers defensively off the bench. You've got a really unathletic rim protector in Zeller. I I guess you have a decent defensive asset in in Larry Nance, but like, I I just think we know what the Blazers are, no matter how much overhaul you have with this bench. Their unit's going to put up a lot of points. They're not going to play any defense. They're going to run you. They're going to run you a lot. They're going to, you know, be a really up-tempo team. I just think we're, we know what we're getting here, Carson. And because of their lack of defense, it was second to last in defensive rating last season. I just don't think we see any major changes. So I just think we know what we're getting with the Blazers, man. And I think in the playoffs, they kind of get run out of the run off the table, no matter who they get matched up with. I just don't think this team is this team's just in the middle. I agree. To me, when you have the second best offense by offensive rating ever. And you lose to a team in the Denver Nuggets that we just talked about. You know, they were lacking for creators a little bit. And they were without Jamal Murray. It just speaks to how glaring their defensive deficiencies really are. They were 29th in defensive rating last year. And if you're going to ask me, do you expect their defense to uh, get better or their offense to get worse? I probably expect their offense to get worse. I mean, their defense very well may get better, too, because it was genuinely as bad as their offense damn near last year. But I don't know, dude. You're losing a quality defender in Derrick Jones Jr., who was giving you 20-something minutes a night. You're not replacing that with plus defense. And I think that you said it just with the bench overall. The starting five is the same, and... You mentioned they were the best pick-and-roll scoring team in basketball. They were also, if I'm not mistaken, the best isolation scoring team. Like, there is just, outside of the Brooklyn Nets, probably no other team that has this kind of offensive firepower that's completely initiated from the perimeter. Like, it is just ludicrous. And even these guys are more reliant on actually jump shooting from behind the arc. It's outstanding what you get from Dame, who's obviously otherworldly, CJ and Norm, who are just pure buckets. That's not in question to me. But are they going to be able to sustain 
making the second most threes in basketball and the sixth best percentage as they did last year when you lose Melo, who was actually a very valuable piece to have in those spots just because of the pure shooting, because he could hit 40% of his threes, even with some frustrating stuff elsewhere. Valuable guy. You lose out on that. And now, if they're going to try to play one of those crazy shooting lineups, who's the guy? Tony Snell? Like... I'm with you, man. I don't think Tony Snell is shooting 59% off the catch again and leading the league in three-point percentage like he did last year. And Ant, you you mentioned it. I have been a big Ant guy. I loved him as a prospect. I think he's got some dynamic traits, but it's just asking too much. He's not consistent enough. He's not refined enough as a decision maker. He's not a sixth man on a good basketball team. It's just too much of a burden. And then everybody else on the bench, very eh. And... Look, I can have my issues with Mello and Ennis Cantor and Derek Jones Jr. Like, they all have kind of their fatal flaw. For Mello, it's mostly the defense, and then also just some of the decision-making. For Cantor, it's the defense. For DJJ, it's the shot. But they're better basketball players than the guys they got replaced with. Ennis Cantor, against bench units, can be very productive. Mello, again, can have value as that plug-and-play shooter. Derek Jones Jr. gives you plus defense. Now... I just look at this bench and I'm like, it's not a playoff team's bench. Like, they don't have guys who have upside, I guess is the distinction to make. Ennis Cantor can go out there and really impact a game. Cody Zeller cannot. And I don't see that guy on the wings either. You know, Larry Nance is gifted, but also an odd fit. And maybe their best bench player, but I just don't think a difference maker. So, yeah. I feel like a regression is very likely from this team. And it's just tough when you're inept defensively. So I don't really think that that improves. I don't know why we would expect it to. And then offensively, they can be a top five unit again. But they weren't going to win 50 games last year with, again, the second best offense statistically ever. And I don't know that they get back to that level. And I definitely don't think they're winning 50 games. I mean, and you mentioned the losses of of Mello, of Canner. And, I mean, it gave them lineup versatility to the point that, you know, guys who at points last year were negative offensive players and Covington and Nurkic, even if those guys were struggling, I mean, you, again, you could put a guy like Melo in and he swings a game for you and just get hot. Like, that matters. That matters a lot, dude. Like, and just, again, the dynamics of one individual game, you don't have that. Like, I'm not expecting Ben McLemore to come out there and, and swing a game for you. You don't have those guys. And, I mean, again... I want to ask you, Carson, like, do we expect permanent regression from Nurkic? Like, what are you expecting out of him, man? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm scared for the guy. It's a good question. To me, I would say he probably is what we saw last year. And it's just really troubling to me that he still isn't at the point where he can play 30 minutes a night for you, that he's not entrusted with that kind of responsibility. I think that... He's a valuable interior presence as a post scorer. I love his playmaking. But to me, unless he adds really another dimension to his game, which I guess would have to be the three-point shot where he's still a ways away. He's got some touch for mid-range, but the three-point shot, he's not exactly knocking on the door of, in my opinion. Until he expands there, I think that we see his ceiling, and there's been a little bit of regression from his peak run in... 2019 when I thought he was just phenomenal and then he came back in the bubble and started out really strong last year but then couldn't sustain that through the playoffs and then this past regular season I just thought was solid defensively uh, what do you what do you think about Nurkic as a big man 
I think he's pretty average. I think that he is a massive presence in there, and I think that he has solid instincts as a shot blocker, but not crazy mobile, not a difference-making rim protector shot blocker. So I just think he's like pretty much replacement level. I mean, do you think the Blazers would be better off with a straight-up rim runner and rim protector? Well, it depends on the caliber. It's tough, dude, because I really do like Nurk, and I'm still a believer in his talent because I just like guys who are skilled, and he's legitimately skilled. He's not just one of those boring plug-and-play bigs that you're talking about. There is maybe a case to be made that for the vertical spacing, for the athletic threat that that would impose on a defense when you also have this kind of shooting, maybe a good version of that. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about a Mason Plumley, a guy of that tier, I'm just trying to think of guys... I'm not taking Dwight Howard, JaVale McGee. I'm not taking those true replacement-level bigs. I still just think Nurk does too many things well. But I think that that's an interesting conversation. And he, to me, has to step up a little bit. Because it's also kind of like, well, he's nice to have as a role man. But you don't need a ton of Nurkic touches in this offense. Mm -hmm. You have your creators from the perimeter. You have your shooting. And he has value as that playmaking presence. Sure, Mm -hmm. it's a dimension that most offenses don't have but I don't know if it's absolutely necessary. I still think that he's their guy, and I don't object to them holding on to him, but if you're trying to find a different ceiling, maybe that is something you explore because, I don't know, they don't have a super high ceiling to me. Yeah, and I'd say, I mean, you touch on the playmaking, and yeah, he's a decent hub out there just because of his size and the attention that he commands, the doubles that he draws, but he's not exceptional with that. I just think, dude, I just... just, conceptualize an offense with Dame and a and a and a Clint Capella type you know what I mean where he can just come off a screen and throw that lob it's just not there yet and I I just feel like it's a dimension of this Trailblazers offensive attack is so high octane it can just bomb you from anywhere I don't know man it would just make him feel a little bit more like the Hawks just make him feel more dynamic more explosive and I just think it's a it's something that's just missing in this offense it could take them up even another level uh, offensively well look if we're talking Clint Capella tier, and that may be a more appropriate comparison than the guys who I was coming up with, because I was thinking about the prototypes for that role, and those guys are generally pretty eh. No disrespect to Plumlee, though. That's my guy. I would absolutely rather have Clint Capella. It's not even a question. I just think Clint Capella is a very simple basketball player. He has effectively no skill, but he has athleticism, and he is a game-changing rim protector. And he is an excellent lob threat. And I agree with you. I think that that is just an easier skill set to amplify when you have great perimeter creators. But I don't know if that's going to happen. There was talk for a while about a Ben Simmons trade. I don't know if that's going to happen. I feel like we're going to see the Blazers run it back for the umpteenth year. And this is just what they are. They've had the flashes of success. They had the Western Conference Finals run. They had a top two offense last year, but just nothing that has really mattered long-term has come of it. And I have to say, they aren't fully running it back. They made their aggressive moves, getting Rocco, getting Norman Powell. I think it's a more talented roster than what we saw a couple years ago. But this bench has regressed. Not a good offseason overall. Not really compelling young talent. Nasir Little, to me, is still a ways away. I don't know if he's ever a legitimate, valuable rotation guy. And they drafted Greg Brown. Project. Like... Yeah, to me, they are a fringe-ish playoff team out West, and the offense is so good, but the defense is so bad. 
And that's kind of just where I stand with them overall. I just want to touch on the Ben Simmons trade uh, for a second. Dude, I would love that here. I think a Ben Simmons to Blazers trade makes more sense than any other one. Like, if maybe even if you're not going for Dame, a CJ McCollum trade, I think, makes sense. And, like, I don't know, dude. I want to see Simmons moved. I want to see another shooter added to this Sixers lineup that can handle the ball. And I just think I just think a move for either Dame or CJ makes so much sense for both parties. It gives Portland somewhat of a future. And, like, I get it. Ben is not the most intriguing prospect at this point in his career, but he needs to just take the wheels of an offense. And you, what I'm getting at here is Portland, it's not going to be long until you guys are forced to fully rebuild. Your bench has regressed way too much to be genuinely competitive. You're not going to be able to rebuild this core in time with the assets that you currently have. Again, as you mentioned, there are basically no young assets on this team except for Simons, Brown, and Nas Little. I don't know. I, I get why you don't want to blow it up now. You've got one of the best players in the world at this point. You've got one of the best offenses on the planet at this point. But to me, it's inevitable, and I think you just have to pull that trigger at some point if you're Portland's front office. I totally understand where you're coming from, and I feel like we could have said this three years ago. Like, they have just put a ceiling on themselves. They've invested a lot of money, a whole lot of money, to the point where they have no flexibility in a core that can be good, but ultimately doesn't have a championship ceiling. And I would be willing to take risks to try to amplify that. And they have, again, to a certain extent, but just not the right risks and not to the extent that is probably necessary. I do think it's worth acknowledging that we did see Dame and CJ both have their best ever years last season. Dame was unbelievable. And the year before that, he was pretty exceptional too. So maybe there's a case for that campaign. But just like the level of scoring playmaking combo he has reached, the level of assertiveness getting to the rim, but then also obviously we know what he does as a shooter and the efficiency. It's just he's a different player than he was a few years ago. And CJ last season, I thought, was more efficient than ever before, scored at a higher volume than ever before, averaged a career high in assists. Like, he was outstanding. So those guys are going to win you a good amount of games. I think they go 45 and 37, though. I don't think that they're a top six seed. What do you think? Are you going to go even lower? Yeah, I'm going 42 and 40. I think this defense is horrid. I think we see a little bit of regression from this offense. And, dude, with how tough the West is, with this record, I mean, they may just be a borderline play-in team. I see you thinking over here, grasping your, I was going to say like your Cody Zeller beard. That man doesn't have a beard, huh? Man just got hair. Neither do you. What's your call, bro? Let me ask you this. Did you say I'm bald? What? Like bald on your face. You knew what I meant. Oh, yeah, I'm face bald. How many offenses in the Western Conference are better than the Blazers? Great question. Taking the Mavs, for sure. I just like, I just, I'm taking the Nuggets. Let me think about it. I might take the Warriors TBH with Clay coming back. You think it's crazy? I'm off that, man. And in fact, I don't think either of the first two are remotely locks. And I don't think that the Clippers without Kawhi for the majority of a regular season are a lock. I don't even think the Jazz are locks. I don't think there's a single lock in the NBA outside of the Brooklyn Nets to be a better offense than the Blazers. Now, there's a couple teams that I think probably will be. I think the Jazz probably will be. I think the Nuggets very well could be. Out East... Maybe the Bucks, like there are candidates, but I think that it's still probably a borderline top five offense at the least. And if you can do that, 
I don't think you can just be basically a 500 team. I got to give them at least a couple games above that because there is a level of offensive explosiveness here that is still terrifying. They have three guys who could easily go off for 20 a game very efficiently this year. And again, doing it overwhelmingly from the perimeter, which is just tough. They're a tough cover, but they're too bad defensively. This is what we thought throughout last regular season. It proved true. It's why I think we both picked them to lose to the Nuggets. They were just too bad defensively, and that's going to continue to hold them back. But 42 and 40, interesting. I thought about going 44 and 38, but there feels to me to be kind of a big gap between 42 and 45. I mean, there's another aspect to this, and I'm just... Completely. Yeah. And uh, Nurk has not always been the healthiest. He's not one of their top three guys, but he's their fourth guy. What? Is that insulting? You were thinking he is? No, dude, I'm just thinking about if Nurk got hurt, they'd have to start Cody Zeller, and then I could never watch Trailblazers games. That's a great point, dude. They've been able to survive offensively without Nurk because of Cantor, just at least being a skilled, efficient option down there. Cody, I don't know. He he can do the simple stuff. He's not going to totally harpoon your season for five games, but over a full year compared to Yusuf Nurkic, yes, that would hurt. Now, maybe this is a hot take. Hear me out, Carson. If Cody Zeller wasn't seven foot tall, I don't think he'd be playing in the NBA. Not a hot take at all. 17% of American men aged 20 to 40 who are seven feet or taller are playing in the NBA. No, that was the joke. No, but I'm just saying legitimately. Yeah. Like, (laughs) you got a really good chance if you're that tall. But no, I could see him as a 6'2 dynamic guard, maybe in the Ant Simons mold. One thing we didn't mention with this team Chauncey Billups taking over for Terry Stotts. Do you think that that really changes things here? I, I mean, I like Chauncey as a guy. I think he brings a different kind of gritty mentality, you know, but I, I don't care what mentality he's going to bring to the team defensively and how hard they work. The talent just is not here for them to reach a new defensive ceiling. Um, I, I don't really think it's that big of a change. Like, again, I don't think this offense is really going to change all that much, but defensively is where I think they would hope to improve in bringing in Chauncey, and I just don't think it matters because, again, you just don't have the personnel. Yeah, you can't have two glaringly weak point-of-attack defenders. Like, there is no option to put on a great guard here. Rocco, very good defender. Not a guy you can switch out onto guards. Much more capable guarding fours and fives. Probably, in my opinion, much better guarding fours than he is guarding great wings to begin with. Like, he's a really good defender, but he's got a weird skill set. He's strong. He's got good hands. He's got great instincts. He's not insanely mobile, switchable, though. He's good, but he's not great there. So, yeah, if you can't stop guys on the perimeter, guess what? There's a reason the Blazers are good. It's because people can't stop them on the perimeter, but there's a reason they're not great, and it's because they can't stop people on the perimeter, and they don't have a Rudy Gobert, a racer on the interior who could make them solid. They have an okay rim protector. So, We have agreed in the hierarchy thus far. I think we're very clearly going to agree here, too. But who do you have fourth in this division? I have the Minnesota Timberwolves here, and I'm I'm just excited to see these guys take the floor. There is so much, I think, to be excited about uh, in Minnesota, and I think it starts with Anthony Edwards. I mean, I just think there are so many areas in which Ant can improve, dude. Like, uh, he shot... Last season, I mean, I, I want to contextualize you. Tremendous rookie campaign, 19-5-3 on 41-33-77 splits. And, I mean, down the back half was averaging 24 points a night. So the scoring skill set's already there. But, again, there's still room he can grow. He can improve off the catch. He was 34% last season. 
His free throw percentage is pretty high. I mean, I think he can get up to being a 39, damn near 40% catch and shooter. The stroke is solid. Um, I think he can develop the shot off the dribble. Carson, you shot 100 step backs last season, made him at a 35% clip. I only anticipate that getting better. And, you know, I mean, I'd love to say, I'd love to think that with the games, the big games that we saw out of him against the Suns and the Grizzlies, those 42-point outings, I just think we can see that more consistently. And I'm not saying, don't get this misconstrued, I'm not saying that we should expect 30-point games and 40-point games from Ant every single night. But, I mean, dude, he's knocking down everything in those games. Catch-and-shoot, pull-ups, had some floaters in those games. And against Memphis, he also had eight assists, dude, and that was from freezing guys in the lane, getting out on the break, spotting shooters. Ant just has those superstar flashes, man, that make me think that he can be... One of the best players in the NBA, dude. He, he, I think he needs to improve in the pick and roll, and I think the real thing that's going to take his game up is that change of pace because he's explosive. And that's the thing that we have talked about here on Nerd Sesh for so long that make they can make him a special playmaker, and that is the attention that he draws in the lane that will just open up shots for, for guys on the wings. If you put shooting around him, which the Timberwolves have here, he's going to be a good playmaker regardless. If he develops that change of pace, becomes a really special ball handler like that, man, where he is confusing and befuddling defenses he doesn't necessarily need it to be a good playmaker but that takes him up a completely other level and I mean he's 88th percentile as a cutter he's already smart in that regard he can work off ball with another you know dominant guy who handles the rock look man he's just he's an athletic freak he's high IQ he is hyper aware and Anthony Edwards is one of the most confident MFers in the league that exists and that's why, that's the biggest thing to me, man. And is confident. He is not scared. He is, he believes in himself. And that matters to this league, man. That's why I think that shot can become super deadly. I just, I think Ant takes this superstar leap this season, man. I think he already did it last season. 24 points per game down the All-Star break. 24-5-4 down the All-Star break. What rookies do that? They don't. I mean, like, I don't really see any reason why he won't be doing this to open up the year. Like, why can't, Ant put up 25 a night this season. Why not? I think he can. And uh, look, I've been a pro Timberwolves guy. I made a video way back when on why the NBA's worst team had one of its brightest futures, and Ant was a huge part of that. You mentioned the progression, but to average after the All-Star break, 24 a game on 45, 35, 76 splits, it's unthinkable production from a rookie. It doesn't happen. Not only does that not happen every year, that doesn't happen every handful of years. And the first half of the season was an adjustment period. But athletes like him are incredibly rare. To have the blend of size and strength and just one of the best pure steps in basketball, rare. I think that even what you talk about with the change in pace, to me, he's underrated there. I think he actually has a mature sense relative to his age and given his athleticism. You would think guys like that are just going to rely on their burst every time. He is deceptive. He does really make defenders think about what he's going to do. He does have an incredibly impressive handle to me for his age. So then you're just running down the list, and it's like, okay, what is he missing as a scorer? Well, a great floater, sure. He still really needs that, the in-between game. But the shot, it needs to be more consistent. But I heard from some people who know some things about the Timberwolves that he was just raining them, raining them in training camp. That's promising, man. And we already saw that progression as the year went along last year. So... I made the video on why I think LaMelo can take the leap to being that borderline all-star level this year. 
I think absolutely the same thing about Anthony Edwards, if not more so. I think he's going to have the opportunity. I think he has the skill set. And by the way, it's not just him to me. We just have so many indications overall that this Timberwolves team is going to be significantly better than what we saw last year. To begin with, they were never healthy at the right time, and everybody dealt with stuff. Cat missed a significant amount of games. D'Lo missed a significant amount of games. Malik Beasley went to uh, house arrest. I guess you don't go to house arrest, but like nothing ever gelled there. But when they did have their guys on the floor, they outscored opponents when Carl Anthony Towns was on the floor. When he, D'Angelo Russell, and Anthony Edwards played together, they outscored opponents by 4.9 points per 100 possessions. That's a good playoff team clip. And they had an offensive rating of 120.9, which would be comfortably the best ever. Small sample size, but like that is a pairing of three dynamic offensive talents. And even though we'll see if there's enough ball to go around for a full year, and I have my questions about how D'Lo fits here long-term, that's insane production. And all minutes that Ant and Cat split between each other, they were barely outscored by 0.3 points per 100 possessions. So when they had their guys out there, they were a pretty average team. It just happened to be that they didn't have their guys out there very much at all. But I think that Ant is a different player, clearly, than he was at the start of last year. Completely different player. Carl Anthony Towns is one of the most special offensive talents we have ever seen at the center position. And to me, is capable of doing a variety of things from the center spot that we have never seen from anybody else other than Nikola Jokic. And by the way, he does stuff that Jokic can't do off the bounce as a creator, hitting step backs. And I think he's the second best passer in basketball from the center position, even though maybe the numbers don't say that. To me, that's about his utilization in the offense. He has a creativity. He has a level of vision. He is able to deliver one-handed creative passes with velocity in a way that I don't think even a DeMontis Sabonis or a Bam Adebayo is. Like, he is unreal there. And he's the greatest shooting big man ever. And he's a really good post scorer, really good role man. Like, I think he's unquestionably a top 20 player in the NBA. I think he's one of the most underrated talents we have. I think he is good enough to be the best player on a legitimate playoff team. I think Ant, it's a lot to ask of a second-year guy. And that's what's important to restate. But I think he is a clear long-term all-NBA guy, and this year, you said it, could average 25 a game. Why not? He's not going to be an all-star in the West because it's the Western Conference, but why couldn't he score 25 a game on average efficiency? We saw him do it for half a year already, and now he's older, and he's had a full offseason to work with here, and he's going to be in a situation where these guys are going to be driven to try to win some games because they're going to be hungry, and they're going to have enough talent to be a legitimate team. I just think across the board, this team is better. I should have mentioned Jaden McDaniels there, but I'll take a breath and let you say anything you want on that. But that's another guy to me who we should absolutely expect growth from. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to add on to contextualize some of what you touched on. 16-20 and 20 post-All-Star game, like when this team again was healthy, was near 500. Their last 15 games, this team ended the season 8-7, and seven, although it may have been, again, to, to their detriment because of what happened with the draft capital. Who cares? This team looked great. And again, you want to talk about third options in basketball. Personally, I would put the hierarchy at Cat Ant and then D Low. However, way you cut it up, you got a 20 point per game buck as your third guy. I mean, there's an offensive ceiling here that I think is just waiting to be tapped in, dude. Like, I think this offense is going to be really special. I, again, like you, I have questions about D Low's fit long term, I have questions about D Low's fit this year. 
I just want to put the ball in Ant and Cat's hands every possession, but Deal's a good off-ball shooter, too. Like, it, it's going to be... I think it's going to be weird however they use D'Lo because D'Lo's just kind of a square peg trying to be fit into a round hole wherever you put him, but he's a bucket. And again, a couple years ago, we saw him running at a Brooklyn Nets offense at a really high level. When given the opportunity, he is a special offensive engine. But either way you cut it up, the Timberwolves are exceptionally offensively talented, and I think if there's one thing that you're going to take away, they're going to be a, a really close to, I don't know, it's tough. They're going to be better than league average. I don't know where I put them among the, you know, the cream of the crop, but they are going to have a bomb squad offensively yeah I think the D'Lo fits very interesting my inclination is you could very well bring him off the bench and we saw the Timberwolves do that as last year went along and by the way he was exceptional at it he gave you basically 19 and 6 on over 57 percent true shooting which is a different level of efficiency than he showed as a starter and you don't have to worry about okay how does he fit with Ant because both those guys are going to need the ball a lot from the perimeter and you throw Malik Beasley into there another guy who needs at least some touches as a one-on-one creator to me you stagger the minutes and I understand maybe there's some trepidation about putting the ball in Ant's hands that much but I do think he has solid playmaking instincts and uh, I don't know it's a little scary because D'Lo will find people the problem is D'Lo also is going to make the team play at his rhythm and his pace. And oftentimes, that's a slow pace, and he's not going to be crazy efficient for you. And he can make some impressive passes, sure, but he's going to rely on some tough shot making, and it's just like he becomes a sixth man, and he's the best in basketball. He is a second offensive option, and he's taking away from Ant, and I don't like it. To me, you can start him, but if you do heavily stagger those minutes and I might just outright bring him off the bench and I don't know it's difficult then because it's who are you entrusting at the point guard position are you trusting Ant to effectively be your actual point guard that's a lot to put on a second year player but it may be their best option they had the guy they had the guy like I thought Ricky Rubio worked perfectly here I completely agree completely agree I mean dude like down the stretch during when when the Timberwolves were at their best they staggered the point guard minutes. It worked exceptionally well. D'Lo had about seven to eight assists a night. Rubio had, I believe, 6.7 a night down the stretch. And he worked well with Ant, dude. Like, I thought Rubio and him had a really solid chemistry as the year drug along. What did they... Do you remember what they moved off Rubio for? I, I, I feel like it couldn't have been a whole lot. I think they... Oh, it was Tarian Prince. They gave him up for Tarian Prince. That was a foolish move. But... Yeah, man, that loss, I think the Rubio loss does actually really hurt this team, dude. And, like, maybe not in the win column, but damn, this offense just moved smoothly at any point, no matter who was on the floor. You had a point guard who could competently run the offense. I just, I really liked Rubio's fit back here, man. Yeah, and look, it's not that Ricky Rubio is an exceptional basketball player. Very, very flawed. Tremendously flawed. But I kind of feel like you want Ant to play alongside the purest kind of point guard there is and that he's just a guy who is going to set the table and doesn't need to be involved every time as a scorer and whatnot. And Rubio, he has his issues too where you're kind of going to play the game at his pace, but not really and definitely not to the extent of uh, D'Angelo Russell. Like he commands the game to me in a good way and makes some exceptional passes, obviously. So... I don't think that's going to crush them, but I do agree. I liked that fit, and I thought that that could have worked. But overall, 
the only concern I have about this team offensively, and it's a legitimate concern, is if there's enough ball to go around. You thought I was going to say shooting. I guess that that could be a concern as well. Not as big of a one to me. But I am worried about balancing these touches because especially once you throw Malik Beasley in there, like that's four guys who want to score 20 points per game. And there's just not going to be that kind of opportunity. And D'Lo, to me, is just not a malleable enough player. Like he's not going to be super willing to just say, yeah, I'll take a backseat. Sure, I'll play off ball. I just don't think he's wired that way. And there was a time I was optimistic and I thought he could work with Steph and Golden State. We barely saw them try, but didn't look like that was going to work. And I just think he probably needs to be forced into that sixth man role, honestly. Again, I don't love that, though, Ant just being effectively your point guard. So I'm conflicted, dude. I'm very conflicted. What I'm not conflicted about, though, is that Jaden McDaniels is a beast, all right? He's a monster. I think he's going to be a top 50 player in basketball in his career. I've said that before. Post-All-Star break, we saw him play legitimately good basketball as a rookie, over eight points a game on 49% from the field, 38% from deep. He, to me, is an immediate starting caliber guy, two-way wing, Morty is staring at me right now. I'm not sure why. I'm a little intimidated. But I just think he is going to be the ultimate 3 and D guy with the length and physical tools he has defensively. One of the better rookie defenders in recent memory. Like, guys just don't come out of the gate that good. Especially, by the way, when in college basketball for Washington, who won like 10 games, he was getting benched because he was so inconsistent effort-wise and production-wise. He has come a long way since then. He's motivated, it seems. I still think he has some upside as a real shot creator off the dribble, too, because he didn't show it consistently, but he'll hit a step back every once in a while, and you're just like, sheesh, sheesh. So uh, I think Jaden McDaniels is going to be really good. I think he's like an X factor for this team. And by the way, the issue may be fit, but the top five guys of D'Lo, Ant, and then Malik Beasley, Jaden McDaniels, and Carl Anthony Towns, really gifted group. And sure, they had all those guys last year, but it was different. Again, they didn't have them all together. Ant wasn't himself. I think Jaden is better. And it's a really talented group offensively. Morty was just mystified by the top 50 players in basketball. Like, you mean that, like, in a given year, you think you're that high on his ceiling? Yes. Here's what I'll ask you. Maybe this isn't the perfect comparison. But why couldn't he do what a Mikhail Bridges does and more? And again, it's not perfect because Mikhail is a little bit smaller, maybe a little better equipped to handle guards. But like to me, he is a perimeter stopper, guards number one options on the wing, shoots in the high 30s from three, and can get you a bucket on his own a little bit. And like was a raw prospect in the draft, raw prospect, and yet was an all-rookie caliber guy who I thought has the tools to be a lot more than that. I'm just optimistic. I, I, I don't see any reason why he can't. It's a simple role, and he's a fluid athlete. He's a smart, defensive, instinctive guy. Like, I think you're probably higher on him than, than I am, or probably most of the NBA community, but no, it's, it's something I definitely think you can do. And you touch on the shooting. Carson, that's why I think this team can be so much better. This is the worst team at defending against the three last season. You want to talk about effort-wise and just being healthy. I think effort alone is going to, you know, because this team's going to be in games and they're going to want, they're going to try to get up in dudes' mouths to stop those shots. This team is not going to let teams rain down threes on them like they did last season. Again, 
the worst team in defending the three last year by percentage. And they were one of the worst shooting teams in the league last year. They were 25th in three-point percentage. And I just don't see that happening again. I see Ant getting better. D'Lo is going to be spot up. Malik Beasley is going to be spot up. Cat is going to be spot up. Jaden is going to be spot up. Like, I just, those were the team's two biggest deficiencies last year, defending the three and making the three. And I don't think that's going to be an issue anymore. That is why I think this team gets dramatically better heading into this year. Well, let me just say this. Not many teams are starting five shooters, Mm -hmm. and they are doing that easily, especially if Ant's consistent. Like, all five of their starters could shoot better than 38% from deep. I wouldn't bat an eye. I mean, I'd be impressed from Ant, actually. I'd probably bat an eye if Ant was better than 38%. But everybody else, and then he's mid-30s? Why not? Why is that not the case? Damn right. I agree. And uh, when we're on young guys, we're bringing up Jaden McDaniels. You know what time it is, Carson? 8.01 8.01 p.m. This guy, dude. It's Leandro Bomaro time. Come on, man. No, it's not, Logan. Look, I love Bomaro. I love Bomaro. And if you were listening to Nerd Sesh, boy, I guess that was a year and a half ago now, almost two years ago. Sheesh. Bomaro was one of my guys to the max. Love him defensively. Love his playmaking at his size. Guy who can get to the bucket well enough some shooting upside maybe if he could do it consistently. He averaged three points per game in the EuroLeague last year, though. I just don't think he's there yet. And that was Leandro Balmaro time. Well used. I mean, were you expecting him to be a rotation guy? I'm looking at him. You have him as their 13th guy. No, I don't have him in the rotation. I'm just glad the guy's over here finally. We're going to see him play NBA basketball. I'm hype. Oh, dude, I was so hyped. I saw Mike Schmitz tweet a video of Bomaro, and I was like, what happened? We were in class, actually. Logan and I were not in class, actually. When we're in class, we're hitting the books, and we're learning about physics. We only take physics classes. We're physics majors, and we're learning about force equals acceleration times mass. That's all that we learn. We just recite that equation. But when we were not in class, I saw that, and I was very excited. Uh, I'm a static dude. Um, I just also like to clear the record. No, dude, I'd, I'd never in class time, dude. I'm hitting the books. We're hitting the freaking books, dude. Force equals mass times acceleration, brother. Equals MC squared. I, I'm gonna be honest. We're not physics majors, guys. Carson lied to you guys on the track. Ah ha ha. Um. Yeah. With that though, that has been Leandro Balmaro time. I can't wait to see that dude at the floor. I think. Honestly, Carson, I think he could fill a Ricky Rubio kind of role on this roster one day. Again, not immediately. I don't think he gets a ton of burn, but he's a smart playmaker. Again, he plays plays hard. I'm just excited, dude. He was a dog out in uh, he was a dog out in uh, the Euro League a couple years back. Barcelona, I believe, is what you were trying to say. Very good. <laughs> Take the mic. All right. Well, I guess I'll just continue to run down my talking points. We've touched a lot on the starting five. Again, I think they are going to have to find that balance to where you're not running Ant, Malik Beasley, and D'Lo together for a majority of the game. You're running two of those guys together. You're staggering those minutes. And by the way, I think that's great because you have an offensive creator on the floor at all times then. But I do think if they try to play all the three of those guys together heavy minutes, it's not going to work. Even though Malik can slide off ball and be that great pure shooter, he's a guy who needs touches. So I'm all for the stagger minutes approach. And then the bench, it's... Eh, you know, I don't love it. Nas Reed I love. Boy, do I love Nas Reed. Huge fan of his game. Competitive guy. Got some touch. Athletic. I think you can continue to add to his game if he really extends that 
game out beyond the three-point line, which he could do just as a catch-and-shooter. Torian Prince, legitimate bench wig, wing. Pat Bev, legitimate bench defensive guard, whether I like it or not. Beyond that, though, not great. And neither of those guys, to me, are like top-notch, sixth-man kind of players. They're all just like, okay, you can be a decent role guy. Maybe that's all that this team needs, but I don't feel great about the bench. What are your thoughts? Neither do I. Um, I think you said it best. If you stagger those minutes, I think you can get away with it. I just don't really trust anybody on this bench to create. Pat Bev's going to go out there and serve some buckets. Yeah, right. There's guys I like. I like Josh Okogie's game. He's a Swiss Army knife, does a lot of things well. Got a little bit of a shot off the dribble, catch and shoot, get to the rack pretty well. I like Okogie. I like a Nas Reed. Pat Bev and Tari and Prince are cool. I think I think they give them a certain edge that this team needs. You know, I think they need guys that are going to kind of set that tendency. Prince is a guy who hits the boards hard. He's a competitor, as is Pat Bev. So, I mean, in that regard, I like having these guys just as locker room presences and guys who are going to compete on the floor. Not the most talented, but they're valuable assets to have on a young roster like this. And look, if we're talking about this team adding shooting, you've added two guys who were 40% from deep last year and who are going to defend at a high level. That's valuable. Defensively overall, I am concerned about this group because the thing was last year, we were like, okay, they could be an average, maybe even better than that offense. Defensively, they're going to suck. It ended up being that they were bad offensively because, again, they didn't have their guys 25th there. They were 28th in defensive rating. And I don't see the path for them to really progress there. Cat, to me, has taken strides defensively. He's a solid big man. He's not the problem. Jaden, I think, is going to step up. There's going to be a lot asked probably of Anthony Edwards to be that second high-level wing defender, which I think he has the physical tools to be, but I don't think he consistently did. So, uh, I don't know. Again, you can sort of mix and match things a little bit and get some of that defense from Pat Bev and Torian Prince for 18, 20 minutes a night, but I think this is still a pretty bad defense. Like, I think somewhere below 20th could be like the number 25 defense in basketball. Because even if they're giving effort, first of all, D'Lo's not going to give defensive effort, okay? I've seen that guy play enough basketball to say that with some confidence. And I think will. Malik Beasley, toss-up. But I think that overall, guys are going to try for the most part, but that just doesn't change having not great personnel there. And that's kind of my concern with the T-Wolves defensively. I concur completely. I wanted to ask you a question about Cat. Cat, um, I, I don't know if you've seen. Uh, they put him on, you know, some regiment. Has dropped down to like two forty. He's looking, he's looking slimmer. He's looking, he's looking pretty muscular. Like he looks, he, he's in the best shape I've ever seen Cat in. So I guess I'll ask you: Are you expecting any, any sort of like growth athletically? And with having him slim down, maybe this is just kind of a question overall. Do you think he fits as a long-term five? Do you think he could work as a four and maybe they should explore getting a a more traditional rim protector? No, I don't think so. I think the value of having him and four shooters around him is too great to pass up on. And look, he's still a big body in there. I don't think he's ever going to work as a four. Like he is incredibly versatile offensively but he still needs to operate out of the interior a bunch. He needs to be a post creator a bunch. And you put him alongside another big, and it's just restricting his space. I think he really works as a five. And look, I think he is, along with Nikola Jokic, one of the very rare big men 
who are so unbelievable offensively that defensively they can be eh. And I'm like, I don't care. You're a superstar. You're a superstar. He's an all-NBA player this year, no doubt. No diggity, no doubt. I mean, the gap between him and a Rudy Gobert when he plays a full year of basketball, people are going to see and be reminded. I've had enough of the cat disrespect, man. I've had enough of people saying, oh, I don't know if he can be a number one. This dude could be the best player on a title team down the line. It's just about putting the right pieces around him. And by the way, I think Anthony Edwards is the right piece. And I think Jaden McDaniels is one of the right pieces. And then it's just filling the rest of this out. Maybe they found their coach in Chris Finch. They've made progress there. And some instability in the front office now with Rosas out. And they'll have to sort of get that all fixed and get prepared in that respect. But I don't think that's derailing their season. Cat was upset about it. That's not good. So many times Cat has been upset and bombed and... I don't know. I just hope that they keep him happy. He has remained committed to staying in Minnesota, though, many times over. And if he is willing to do that and wait this whole thing out with Ant, this to me is a team that down the line, very legitimate playoff group. And this year, I definitely don't think they're there. I still think Ant is going to be a second-year player, even though I think he could be one of the best second-year guards we've seen in recent memory. He's going to be a second-year guard. I don't think the bench is great enough. And so I think overall, they to me are a 35-win team. That's the tier I would have them in. Where would you have the T-Wolves? I've got them winning 39 games. I've got them winning 39 and 43. Maybe this is a high end uh, for Minnesota, but I don't know. Like I expect them to be, I expect them to be poor defensively, like you mentioned. But I, I like I said, man, I expect this team to compete. I, I think they're going to be in a lot of games that I can't do. I just don't, like, again, I expect this team to have a bad defense. I don't expect them to be dead last, you know, against teams shooting the pill. And I think that's a big swing. I think this offense is electric, close to top 10, fringe top 10. So I don't know, man. I just expect a lot of growth from this young core. Maybe I'm counting a little bit too much on this bench. You know what I mean? Like, you got a lot of Jalen Noel, Josh Akogi, Jared Vanderbilt minutes. But I don't know. I don't think 39 wins is, is too crazy. I think they'll be really close to making that play or that play in cut uh, towards the end of the season, but they'll kind of taper off. Again, I just am a little too concerned about the fit and the defense, and I'm not comfortable with a three game gap between them and the trailblazers. Maybe I'm underselling what this offense could be because again, there's a lot of individual talent here and uh, that could be enough, but I don't know that it ends up working and fitting as like a top 10 or better offense. I think they're probably just outside that conversation. I think they're going to be a lot better than last year. Trust me. And I'm very, very excited for Timberwolves basketball because I love Ant and Cat as much as anybody. But I don't know that they're on the fringes of that playoff conversation. Logan, something's got you laughing over there. Yeah, my dad just comments Chuck Nevitt. We're in here discussing... uh I don't know if you guys have seen the uh, the the image that's gone around. You know the the ant photoshopped. Have you seen that one? No. Somebody photoshopped Anthony Edwards to where he looked like he was standing next to Cat, and he's like five inches taller than him. So he's like seven four, seven three. So I, I put in the comment section. Uh, uh, John brought it up, and I said seven three Anthony Edwards would be the greatest player to ever exist. And my dad just comments Chuck Nevitt. I said, who the hell is that? I had no idea who Chuck Nevitt is. Seven foot five. 217 pounds, played 155 career games, averaged one and a half points and one and a half boards, managed, Carson somehow managed 10 seasons in the league. Good for Chuck Nevitt, 7'5". I had never heard of this cat. Shout out Chuck Nevitt. 
Huge fan of his game. All right. Let's talk about the last team in this division, Logan. The Oklahoma City Thunder. This is what we call a rebuilding year for Sam Presti's crew, and I think he very much likes it that way. But what are you expecting out of OKC? The Thunder are weird, man. <laughs> like, I think the biggest question that we have to ask about this team is, what the hell do they do with all these young assets? Like, I just, you can't hold on to all these guys. I, You talk about ball going around, Carson, for the uh, for the Timberwolves, and I, and I posed this question to you pre-pod. I don't know if there's enough ball to go around long-term for this team. Like, there's, just, there's a few questions I want answered by the Thunder this season, and that's, is Shea Gilgis-Alexander your long-term guy? Or are you just going to wait to deal him? Because I think Shea is an exceptional prospect, but he's not a guy who's going to lead you to a title. So he's a guy you move off of to a team to make them competitive? Because I think SGA is a second or third guy can make a team a title contender for sure. That kid is special. What he does with the ball in his hands is special. He is deadly in the mid-range. He is deadly from the perimeter. He's deadly on the interior. He's a pretty good playmaker. Like, he's he's a special guy. I, do they commit to him long-term? Because the guy you drafted in Josh Giddy is a guy who needs a ball in his hands. Like... It's just, that's the big thing for me, Carson, that, that made me scratch my head about this draft process. We loved Giddy as a prospect, and I love Giddy. I love Giddy as a prospect. I hope that, you know, I hope that he turns out to be every bit of the guy that we want him to be, but he's a guy that needs a ball in his hands, and that doesn't make sense right now with where SGA is a player. Then you have a guy like Teo Malatnan, who we really liked last season, who's a really special playmaker, who needs the ball in his hands. They draft one of my favorite players in the draft in Trey Mann later in that same draft who I think is really similar to a guy like D'Angelo Russell, who needs the ball in his hands. So my question is just, also, Ty Jerome's here. Ty Jerome's a really good playmaker. He's a guy who's you know actually pretty good off-ball as well, who can play that catch-and-shooter role, but all guys who are exceptional out of the pick-and-roll need the ball in their hands, and they're all really young. So like my question is just, who are the guys that you bet on long-term? And for this entire year, do you just let them all run together? Do you just have this smorgasbord of really good ball handlers? Like, I just want to know who the Thunder bet on long-term. I want to know who their assets are long-term. I want to know what this Frankenstein is that they're building. Like, how are you putting these pieces together? I like some of these other younger off-ball guys here. Like, I like Jeremiah Robinson Earl long-term. I think he's going to be special. One of your favorites out of the draft. I like Luke Dort as an off-ball guy. If you use him just as a straight-up defender, and a catch-and-shooter occasionally, but it's like, there's just a lot of cooks in the kitchen here, man. There's a lot of young cooks in the kitchen. I just don't know how you how you differentiate the minutes here. Again, none of them are standouts, so maybe you just let them play this year and kind of pick and choose as the year goes along, but I just don't want these guys taking the ball at SGA's hands when they're not as good, and if you're not going to use SGA, free him. Send him somewhere he's going to be competitive and can actually go and win some games, and if he's your long-term asset, then turn these other young assets into pieces that you can use to build around SGA. You know, I just, everybody has said this about the Thunder. Everybody knows this about the Thunder. We just want to know what they are going to do with these young assets to make them a competitive team one day. Yeah. Look, I think I'm a real optimist when it comes to young guys and young teams in the NBA because, hey, they haven't really given me a reason to be negative about them yet. It's just all butterflies and rainbow. And, oh, it's okay. You shot 30% from deep, but it's projectable. You're young. Right? I tend to be that kind of guy. I don't really like what the Thunder have going on, though. And uh, to me, uh, SGA should unequivocally be their guy. And that's not saying that he's ever going to be the best player on a title team. But when you're 22 and you average 24 a game on 51-42-81 splits... 
and you have as many positive offensive traits as he does at 6'6", with just otherworldly change in pace and everything you mentioned, and a very solid, improved shot, I just don't know why you would be like, hey, let's move on from that. So I think everything needs to be prioritized around him. But like you said, there's a lot of guys who need the ball and a lot of guys who are just kind of going to be ugly with the ball in their hands. Like on top of just the really young guys you mentioned, uh, Lou Dort is uh, a guy who just sure can catch and shoot, but also is going to have some possessions where he just decides to ram into the paint and see what happens. Darius Baisley. I have been an optimist on previously. I like his shot creation skill set at his height, but the consistency of the shot isn't there. He kind of needs the ball and like, if those guys are going to be your second and third best offensive options, you're going to suck, dude. Like, those guys still haven't shown a legitimate modicum of consistency whatsoever. Not even close. And that's with them having a year to kind of fool around. And again, they can produce raw numbers-wise, but the efficiency, the consistency, just not there. So that's troubling to me because this was easily the worst offense in basketball last year. And Shea will help that, but the guys around him are not going to. And the shooting is sketchy. But specifically, the guys you mentioned, what, sketchy is an understatement? Yeah, okay, the shooting sucks. The guys you mentioned, Josh Giddy to me, it's not going to be easy for him to be a good guy off rip. Like, I loved Josh Giddy when people were talking about him as a second rounder. I said, hey, he's going to be a lot better than that. Not a second rounder, a late first rounder. And then when he gets to be the number six pick in the draft, I'm like, hey, let's hold our horses here. He's going to be a tough guy to integrate into a really good offense. He needs the ball a lot. We don't know about the shot, all these things. And as a rookie, dude, I just don't see it. It's going to be an adjustment. Teo Maladon, you know, I like Teo a lot because of his passing, but I just think he's got to shoot the ball more consistently. And I think he's really a point guard. I don't think he fits alongside a guy like SGA. And as a point guard, I think he needs a much more developed skill set as a scorer. Needs more of that in-between game. Not a crazy athletic presence. So I really like the passing, but the scoring just not there yet. Honestly, Logan, you want to know my take for how this whole thing should shake out? Start Ty Jerome. Because, yeah, look at me like I'm crazy. Here's the thing. Ty Jerome is really good, dude. And there's a reason he was a first-round pick and then got moved off of like it was nothing. But last year, he gave you 11 points and three and a half assists per game. And he does it in a variety of ways where it's easy to fit alongside SGA. I don't know how you play SGA with Teo Maladon. Not worth it, in my opinion, to take the ball out of SGA's hands. Ty Jerome will shoot 41% off the catch where he gets a majority of his looks from deep. He's great there. But then also incredible poise out of the pick and roll, legitimate in between game, really good playmaker, like 97th percentile pick and roll scorer last year, 42% from deep overall, 49% on floaters, cerebral player. So to me, I look up and down this group and I'm like, okay, we start Dort and Baisley on the wings. Obviously SGA is running the one. I want Ty Jerome in there as my two and as a guy who can legitimately handle the ball and play off of it. I just like his talent right now more. I think he's a legitimate long-term starting piece. I think he's a good basketball player, and I think he's underrated. I don't think he's had enough shots in the NBA yet. The fact that he wasn't in the rotation here for much of the year and the fact that he didn't play very much at all for the Suns as a rookie, to me, understates how gifted he actually is. Thank you.
Thank you. We do this all the time with Ty. Like, I, I tried to stress what a special asset Ty could be in the league, man, because it's exactly what he did at UVA. He ran our offense out of the pick and roll because that's all we had. We had him and Kyle Guy chucking up shots, and Ty would get those tough bucks in the lane. He'd also move off ball really well with when Kyle Guy had the rock. He competes hard defensively. And we talk about cerebral. It's not just his playmaking and passing. It's his defense. Ty is a Swiss Army knife. In all senses of the word, the kid is versatile, man, and I am. Thank you, bro. The kid should start, like right now, and that's what I think makes this even more puzzling because that's one hell of a guard tandem for the future, dude, in Ty and Shea. And so it just makes me question why you aren't surrounding these guys with assets that they could be successful with. And I'm not saying that, like, just guys that could play off ball because I feel like you have your ball handlers for the future in these guys. And Gideon Maladon can be special, but again, they need to run offenses to maximize their talents. Ty and SGA aren't necessarily like that. They can play off-ball to guys. So why not go out and get a rim runner? Why not go out and get a rim protector that can be your big of the future? Why not go out and get a guy that can space the floor and fill in a 3 and D role and play alongside these guys? Maybe they have then Jeremiah Robinson Earl, but I don't know, man. Like, How many ball handlers do you need? And then you get to a guy like Poku's on this roster. I don't know what the hell that guy is. You know, like, I feel like he's another guy that needs the ball in his hands to be a really prolific guy. Like, I, I don't know, man. I just, I agree. I think, I think you have your, I think you have two really guys, two guys who can run an offense at a high level and play well off of each other. Surround them with talent. Surround them with pieces that will work. Personally, I don't think that's what they do, though, Carson. I think they'll probably run with Gideon Mann as their future and move off SGA and Ty Jerome in the long run. That's my prediction. Yeah, I think so. That, to me, betting on either of those guys compared to SGA would be criminal. And I'll be clear, I don't think that Ty Jerome is some foundational piece. I think that Josh Gideon and Trey Mann should probably both be better. I just think Ty Jerome is a starter. I think he's a guy who's easy to plug and play, and I could see him playing a valuable role on a championship winning team I think he's a guy who plays winning basketball because of his versatility and toughness and IQ and shooting all those things you want from a plug and play role guy so I think that he's again a solid piece but to me SGA is what you have like if a guy who just turned 23 and is a legitimate star very legitimate star dramatically improved last year versatile if he is not who you want you're being stupid like just don't overcomplicate it and it's not even that I've been the biggest SGA guy historically yeah I liked him as a prospect I didn't think he was insane after his rookie year I liked him I wasn't as impressed as some other people but he's great he's phenomenally talented so he's just in a different tier as far as priority than anybody else completely different tier and I don't think that they're going to move on from him but you never know and they talked about shopping him for the number one overall pick I guess I probably think Kate is going to be a better guy than SGA, but it's always controversial to move on from a 22-year-old, now 23-year-old, as good as SGA is. So that's where I stand on that. Overall, shooting on this team on the wings is going to be rough, as it has been for the Thunder for a decade now, genuinely, since the days of Tabo Cephalosha and Andre Robertson. The big man situation, to me, just saying bye-bye Moses Brown, mistake, like, I think that's a legitimate long-term starting guy who just does the plug-and-play role man rim protector role pretty well. Derek Favors, I don't... I guess he has to start at the five. Like, it's either him or Isaiah Roby. Neither of those guys, to me, are, like, 
super true fives, maybe the Thunder are just going to do the thing like last year where they start Poku because they really don't care one iota about not even just winning games but being competitive. Maybe they do that with Isaiah Roby this year. And I think Isaiah Roby's fine, actually. I don't have a problem with him, but he's not a starting caliber big. Derek Favors isn't even a starting caliber big. Like, he played 15 minutes a game last year, and he's not a center. Maybe he's a center. I don't know. He's undersized, though, and, like, just lacking in dynamism on both ends. Solid defender. Probably a plus defender overall. But offensively, just so middle of the pack. And, by the way, we didn't see Al Horford for majority of last year. Because, again, the Thunder just didn't care. And I think Al was perfectly content to just sit out. But he was, when healthy, their second-best player. And they were 11-17 and 17 when he played. They were 6 points per 100 possessions, better with him on the floor. And they were 11-33 and 33 without him. Like, those splits, again, they were a competitive team with him, and they were the worst team in basketball without him. And the same can be said about SGA. And... They're going to have SGA this year, sure, but I do think that Horford loss, even though, again, we didn't see him for most of the year, on their overall record, he had an impact. And that's part of the things that's weird about this Thunder team is you can look at the fact that they didn't have SGA for much of the year and say that's why they were so bad, but also they were overall statistically worse than their record. They had the worst net rating in basketball last year. Once SGA went down, I mean, they were by far the worst team in the league. And even when SGA played, they were 16-19. and which is the kind of thing that will turn your head and say, whoa, okay, they were competitive. But a deceptive 16-19. They still got outscored by eight points per 100, and he was on the floor. So to me, that's not like, oh, look at how competitive they can be, because I just think he had to go superhuman. He had to go superhuman to get them there, and still it was fluky and lucky. So this is just a team to me that doesn't care about winning basketball games, but what's more troubling is they don't care about assembling a team that is intuitively going to possibly win a lot of basketball games down the line. Like, just keeping Baisley and Lou Dort alongside SGA, even though I don't dislike either of those guys point blank, you need to have established shooters alongside him. I don't know why you haven't prioritized getting a really good role man alongside him. By when, by the way, you had a guy who could have had that skill set in Moses Brown, at least athletically. So overall, just discouraging. And they have a million picks, great, whatever. They're going to suck this year, and they could be the worst team in basketball. The only reason I don't think they will be is because they have SGA, and he is a cut and a half above whatever the Orlando Magic have as their best guy. He's like eight cuts above, honestly. He's a legitimate star, and he's good enough to get this team out of the absolute cellar. But other than that, man, I just don't think Giddy plays a lot. Other rookies, I do really like JRE, Jeremiah Robinson Earl, and uh, actually Joe Rogan experience, excuse me. He was one of my favorite picks of the draft at 32. I just think he's an immediate rotation guy, Villanova guy, and you know that those guys just tend to be smart. They tend to be versatile. They tend to defend high effort, and to me, he's all those things. Summer League, we saw him hit some jumpers. We saw him take a couple guys off the bounce. Not crazy dynamic off the bounce, but I do think the shot is very legitimate, better than what his actual percentage said from deep in college. Should be a switchable big. Love him there. And Trey Mann... It's going to be a process to me. Even in Summer League, 24% from the field. Like, I think he's got an impressive handle and bag, and I know that you loved him. I wasn't as high on him because I just questioned sort of how exceptional is he? Is he going to justify having the ball a ton with the playmaking? The jury is still kind of out, but regardless, he's not going to be consistent as a rookie, and he's not going to be like a legitimately valuable player. So you look up and down this roster, and it's like, 
dude, they might have one and a half legitimately good NBA players. Like, maybe you have Lou Dort as a legitimately good NBA player. He's a legitimately great defender. He's also a legitimately bad shooter and just tough to fit in offensively. And that's not going to win you a lot of games. In fact, it's going to lose you a lot a lot of games. And that's what I think we see from the Thunder this year. And they may be fine with that, but I feel bad for SGA because he just deserves better than that. And he was in a winning situation two years ago and adapted very well to that situation. And now they're just going to suck. And it's painful to regress because he was in playoff situations his first two years. And now he's going to be on one of the worst teams in the league, even though he's so much better. Yeah, and I think you touched on, I guess, my biggest gripe on why this team's going to suck. They just have no, they just don't have enough shooting, and it's frustrating because when you have a guy who I think can be an offensive engine, a really special one, you don't surround him with shooting, it's just pointless. So I think it's why the Thunder suck. Like, I think they may have the, I think it'd be a bottom three team in three-point shooting. I think that's what ultimately just handcuffs them because you've got a couple of creators here, you just don't have the shooting. And you, I don't know, I, I'm excited to see the young guys develop. Trey Mann, Josh Giddy, Poku, even Basley and Roby. I'm ex- I'm excited to watch these young guys play. It's just not a like you said, Carson. It is not a good roster constructed around your star player, and it's just disappointing. Because I don't think the Thunder are even competitive, dude. I think they just get ran off the floor most games, and maybe that's what they want. They want their picks to hit. They want high picks so they can, I don't know. I guess keep getting younger and younger, and, and never never build a competitive roster. We'll just be thinking towards the future. Just frustrating. I do feel bad for SGA. This team's going to suck. Carson, I've got them winning 20 games, genuinely. I think they have the worst record in the NBA. No way. They're not going to be worse than the Magic, I don't think. Like, maybe they get beat up on by the West a little bit more. Ah, honestly, dude, the Magic probably have maybe more quality players. I think SGA is going to win them more games than people might even expect. I just think he's that good individually. I will say... Absolutely right about the shooting. They were 29th in three-point percentage last year. They were 30th in free-throw percentage, just as an indication of their flaws there. As I was touching on with the size, Derek Favors is 6'9". He's at least a big, bulkier presence. Isaiah Roby is 6'8". And to me, if he's going to find a way in this league, it might have to be really developing that three-point shot of his a little bit more and refining that. It's like they just are lacking in size, they're lacking in shooting, they're lacking in actual legitimate creation off the dribble. Tough to find things that the Thunder are going to do well this year. They were 24th in defensive rating last year. Again, they were the worst offense in basketball. I don't see significant improvement coming. To me, this is just SGA being fully healthy for a year is going to get you, again, 23 wins. That's where I have them. I think they're clearly the worst roster in the West. Oh, by a mile. And, uh, I think outside of SGA, yeah, they'd probably have the worst roster in the league. So any other rookie talk, any Poku takes, I can run down quickly what I think on those fronts. I pretty much touched on the rookies. The reason I don't think Josh Giddy is going to be a productive guy immediately, if that isn't intuitive to people, is just because I think his ability to create off the bounce and his ability to knock down shots reliably is a bit too far away. I love his passing, but at the end of the day, He's not going to be a guy who's easily slid in and it's just, hey, Josh, go play because off ball going to be a big question and on ball, I just think he needs to be more dynamic and we haven't really seen obviously him at this level. So we'll see. Maybe he's a little smoother off 
from the jump than I'm expecting. And then Poku, it's just, look, dude, starting him last year was criminal. He was one of the worst players I've ever seen, and he got better as the year went along, but he still shot 34% from the field and 28% from three, and I like the passing, but with every great pass is a mind-blowing turnover, and if that guy's ever going to be something, it's going to be not this year. It's going to be in several more years. So anything you want to add to that? I'll just briefly touch on Trey Mann. I did really like him out of the draft. I think he's going to get G-leagued, but I think the kid's special. The change of pace, the just the feel for the game. And like, yeah, like you said, Carson, he's probably going to be super inefficient. Again, 24%, pretty bad. But I mean, it's not because he's taking bad shots. This kid takes, he doesn't make, he's a good decision maker is what I'm trying to get at. And I trust this kid to make good decisions. He's got a decent floater. He's got a decent step back game. He's a good, like, in college, he's a good catch and shooter. Like, I think, I think they are all things that will translate and they all make him a great player. It's just going to take time. I can send him to the G League for a year. I think we see him next year, and I think he's a really talented point guard that could that could play along a guy like alongside a guy like SGA. I just think it's going to take time. I think Poku kind of sucks. Yeah, my feeling with Trey Mann is that they're probably not going to send him to the G League. They're probably going to say, "Hey, let's throw you into the fire," and uh, he might be too good for the G League, anyways. I don't know. We'll see. Overall going to be a rough year for the Thunder, but I will stake my claim with Ty Jerome and Jeremiah Robinson Earl. Good all-around basketball players, do a lot of things well, come from winning programs, and just have those kind of identities fundamentally to who they are. So there you have it. The Northwest Division, our longest podcast thus far, Logan, in this preview series. We're going to hit two hours on this one. I didn't expect it necessarily, but it is a fun, interesting, very competitive and gifted division. So If you want to see the NBA season preview content we have already done, then you probably know where to find it. If you're watching on our YouTube channel, how's it going? You can find all of the pods here that we have live streamed. You can also listen on Apple, Spotify. Links to that will be in the description. Maybe you're already listening there. If so, fantastic. If you are on our YouTube channel, though, you can also stick around and see some of the video breakdown, video essay content we make. I just made a video on MPJ, if he was really deserving of the possible $200 million contract that he just got. Logan made a video on Daniel Jones. Last week, I made a video on LaMelo. All of that's coming out. I try to do one weekly, so stay tuned for all that stuff. You can follow us on social media. Twitter is at nerd underscore sesh. Instagram is at nerd sesh. We post clips, graphics, NFL game picks, things like that. And by the way, I didn't mention this at the top of the show, although I did say it last week. We are not doing an NFL show today as we normally would because we got to get through this NBA season preview content, but we're going to do a quicker show tomorrow hitting on some of the main storylines from NFL stuff. So you guys will see that probably a shorter show, but who knows? We tend to talk. So that'll be coming soon. And really that's it for us. Hope you've enjoyed as always. And with that, I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sash. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is 
finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.